I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day. Hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. Welcome back to Drink in the Movies with Taylor and Michael. This week we will be discussing some film noirs from the 1940s. We're going to lean towards some more modern takes with Hatters and Blowout from Brian De Palma. But we are going to cover three classics in the film noir book that you lent me that piqued your interest. These titles are Dark Passage, Out of the Past, and The Naked City. Why did you choose these? I'm uh, curious and I think the listener might be as well. Yeah, absolutely. These are three that had been on my radar prior to reading the book. Um, so the book we read is called A Panorama of American Film Noir. The book. Now, could you tell us the original title? Because I can't. The French title? Exactly. Oh, I will not dare try it. To it is certainly it. A, a French-centric noir book that kind of gives you an understanding of how France was restricting the um, depictions of film and the freedom of speech in, in cinema in France, which I found to be quite interesting while I was reading through the portions that I got to. Yeah, sort of one of the first comprehensive takes, critical takes on film noir. This is sort of the book that in a way kind of coined the term. So it's, uh, you know, interesting for that reason, even though it's something that's now been discussed for decades, it's kind of fun to just go back to where, you know, the, uh, the ideas kind of originated. Where the apple fell from the tree. Exactly right. Um, so did, did you, um, were you drawn to the Naked City because of what they say about cutting it to ribbons and how much um, the France kind of restricted the original work that was edited? It actually wasn't so much for something specific in the book, but I had seen another noir by that director, Jules Dassin, uh-huh. uh, called Brute Force. Which, Which I, I really was piqued by reading about the depictions of acute violence mm -hmm. that are mentioned within the book about this film. Yeah. And I was like, why didn't we pick Brute Force? But now I know. Right. I did enjoy <laughs> Brute Force quite a bit and uh, was interested in seeing something else that Jules Dassin did and had really heard about the Naked City's incredible sense of place. So It's, it's one of the that... first films where I felt like, or it's one of the earliest films where I felt like it had a sense of place. Yeah. That was physical, um, that wasn't uh, staged. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that one had been on my radar since I kind of saw Brute Force and wanted to see something else by Jules Dassin. Um, Dark Passage, I felt like there had to be one with Bogart in it. We both have seen the Maltese Falcon before. We've talked about that before. And, and it's um, considered to be his best, at least in the promotional materials. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was. It's kind of a funny trailer. And You thought The Big Sleep was good. This is their best performance yet, I believe, is how that trailer uh, yeah, some, and interludes. <laughs> some pretty shameless self-promotion. And I thought it might be, you know, kind of a tonal departure from the other ones because it does have a romance to it. Um, yes, Out of the Past does as well. But. It does. But, yeah, I, I thought just mood-wise it might be it might be a, something a little bit different. And I had heard about, you know, this extended uh, point-of-view sequence. Sure. So thought that would be fun. And then Out of the Past caught my eye because I hadn't seen anything with Robert Mitchum in it before um, I don't think I had either yeah um, I feel like I've read a lot about him and his associations with film noir in both this as well as uh, The Night of the Hunter which I'd never oh, seen before I have seen that so I guess oh, I have seen them I just you know yeah. been years <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah all ones that I was excited to check out we should get to our first impressions first let's get our first impression of this funky red ale that we just got from Hellbent let's do it how is it, Jen? Tell us. It's beautiful. Once it hits your lips, it's so good. What kind of beer? Mm. Oh, yeah. 
that's that's nice and mellow and sweet. It doesn't have too bitter of a tang. It's got the right amount of accent. It does. Mine's in a clear glass, and it has a nice caramel color to it, and I do think it has some caramely notes. They're mm. quite nice. We haven't had a red ale yet, I don't think. Red ales I are not a beer that I have a lot, but every time I have them, I'm like, why am I not having these more? So that you appreciate them at times like now. Exactly. Also because they didn't make any until now. We just went in, and this is the first time they've had red ales, and they had two. We, we chose the funkier of the two. We've been lucky with variety so far. And now we're going to go ahead and watch the trailer for The Favorite. Um, we're going to give you our first impressions on that, and then we're going to watch Mary Queen of Scots and do the same. We'll be back in a second. I'm on my side. Always. Favor is a breeze that shifts direction all the time. Then in an instant, you're back sleeping with a bunch of scabrous whores. All right, we just watched the trailer for The Favorite featuring Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weiss, and Emma Stone. What are your thoughts, Michael? I'm super excited for this movie. I've been a fan of Yorgos Lanthimos for his last uh, couple movies. I think you're maybe a little more hit and miss. Quite a bit more hit and miss. I, I certainly didn't feel the way about The Killing of a Sacred Deer I'd expected to feel, but I did appreciate the form that he brought to that film and the performances. I think that maybe he was so effective with that film and rubbing me the wrong way that my derivation from the, the mean is a reflection of how well he made that film and mm. how much I hated it, which is what he wanted me to do. That's pretty strong hate. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think that that's correct. I, I think I gave it like a two and a half, but I felt hate walking out of it. Not towards him, but towards the emotions that it made me feel. Like, I yeah. think it made me feel hate. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I liked The Killing of a Sacred Deer a little bit better than you. I really enjoyed The Lobster. That was one of my favorite movies from yes. 2016. Um, and I've noticed that he likes to put the in front of his titles. Have you noticed this? He does. Absolutely. He also know, likes Rachel. He does. And I think she's uh, a good fit for him. I like her in most of his work. A word that I have heard associated with his work before is Kubrickian, which I think some people find is too generous, but for his sort of use of form to, you know, give his world um, an edge or some kind of abrasiveness. I Um, I can see that, but I think that Kubrick personally is more sterile. mm. And I think that he has more living, breathing characters that are Mm. just kind of raging against the normal behaviors that we would see in a, in a normal person. But I, I definitely see, like, form similarities. Yeah, yeah. So if I think about this as, like, in what way could I see this relate to Kubrick? Because I've, I've heard Yorgos compared to, to Kubrick certain times before. To me, this is sort of like a Barry Lyndon maybe meets a Clockwork Orange. Ah. It's kind of his period piece, but it clearly looks like it has some, you know, doses of surrealism or something mm-hmm. kind of bizarre like and probably a, and the killing of the a little deer. repulsive somehow yes. but also with this kind of tinge of dark comedy right like i yes. just would not be surprised if i laughed during this movie and am in, in like in sort of repulsed at the to. same time because i think that when i was watching the killing of a sacred deer people were laughing and i was never one of them and i would like to be the person that laughs like i was in the lobster <laughs> yeah i definitely laughed more during the lobster than the killing of a sacred deer. I find that odd. I think that people were laughing, but I can I kind of understand it at the same time. It's a weird thing, and I yes. think that is kind of a testament to his handling of tone, right? I, I think that he's kind of in this weird vein where um, Kubrick would meet uh, the McDonough brothers. 
the the mm. Irish brothers that make those dark farcical comedies that you know people are very repulsed by or very receptive to. Yeah. Three Billboards last year, War on Everyone, which is as politically incorrect a, a buddy cop film as I've seen in the last decade, which I personally loved, but yet a lot of people hated it. It's mm. this weird tone that I think that he's taking as well, where he's depicting these things and making fun of them, and you know I didn't get or grasp the killing of a sacred deer. I certainly hope to get the favorite. One thing that this made me think, though, is that Emma Stone may have dropped out of um, Greta Gerwig's film, Little Women, because she just made this period piece film, and maybe Greta's film is shaping up to be something that she just doesn't want to... Maybe she's tired of doing period stuff. This is kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah, and that might have felt like a little bit of too much of the same. Yes. I could understand that. She, she looks fantastic, Rachel looks fantastic, but the clear standout in the trailer is Olivia Colman. She looks in fucking incredible. She she looks as good as Julianne Nicholson's performances have been this year. Yeah, I think Yorgos does have a uh, uh, strong sense for casting. Yes. So I don't doubt that we will enjoy the performances as you love. Yes. Barry Kiao? I never know how to pronounce his last name. I I loved his performance, even though I didn't like that movie. I loved his performance, and he's one of my most anticipated performers that I'm always looking towards what he's doing. Yeah. And what he did in Dunkirk in his brief moments were so empathetically pulling that, yeah. Yeah. Definitely a good caster. Or he has a good casting director, perhaps. Yeah. We uh, also saw Barry in American Animals earlier this year. Which, which we I don't were think... less receptive to. Absolutely. But, but I liked him quite a bit. still had a great performance, yes. Yeah, he was fun. All right. Uh, any last thoughts here? I don't think so. Very excited right. to see well, it. Well, let's uh, cheers here and watch Mary Queen of Scots. I will not be scolded by my inferior. Your inferior? Are you afraid, Henry? No. Good. Because our swords are not just for show. Alright, we just watched the trailer, the official trailer, not a teaser, for Mary Queen of Scots. What do you think? I'm a little skeptical after watching this trailer. It's a title that's been on my radar and I've kind of been looking forward to, but this is really the first visual that I have uh, of the movie. To me, this looks a little bit more like kind of typical Oscar bait to me than I was expecting. 100% um, Oscar bait look to it. Kind of the the prestige costume drama. I'm not quite sure how this might surprise me. Well, it kind of seems like we know what we're in for with this. expect it to surprise you. Exactly. Is that what you're looking for out of a film, though? To be surprised? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I would not be surprised... Well. Sorry, I shouldn't use that word. But when we watch The Favorite, for example, I will expect some surprising tonal shifts, some surprising yeah, you know, uses of, of, of violence in so, combination so with comedy. So this comes back to our, um, a conversation we had before, I can't remember exactly when, where you are kind of equating all film with a great, um, a great director, a, a great auteur. Mm-hmm. And... I, I think that this is a film that doesn't have a, a good auteur, but that doesn't, or even a great auteur, and probably not even a good auteur, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be absent of value as a film. Certainly possible, but I mean, if we like have the choice in our movie watching to watch things you know, with a strong authorial voice and movies that don't have that like why wouldn't we talk about you know the fact that one seems to be more pleasant oh, no, or more abs- enjoyable than the other i mean i'm, I, sure I'm not saying value, we shouldn't but, talk about yeah. it it's just to to me i wouldn't be 
I'm not saying this will happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is the, f the first or, or third button in someone's development to becoming an auteur, mm. where they're working through the studio in a way that, you know, they they can't do what Yorgos Lanthimos did. They can't do what Steve McQueen did. There are, there are good directors out there. Um, last year we had a, a crazy, beautiful, original, I, I think, auteurian piece in Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Oh, yeah, that, I didn't see that That one. we wouldn't have had without the uh, chop development that she had on her previous feature, and I don't remember the name of it. So yeah. I, I, I do think that there are certain things we can look for that will bring value to the film. I'm not disputing that it's definitely not directed by an auteur, but I, I think that it's maybe important to not just relegate it to, you know, the, the dark depths of who cares. You know, yeah, it does yeah. have compelling looks. It's just being marketed in such a way that it's certainly Oscar fodder. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not, you know, it has a, a great cast. Um, I'm excited to see both Sergio Rodin and Margot Robbie. It both looks like they're Unfortunately, there's only one scene that they're in together. Yeah. Not just in the trailer, but in the film. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I hope it, it doesn't feel too familiar. Um, I think it will. I, I think it will definitely play into archetypal story mm -hmm. behaviors. But what I'm, what, what I gleaned from it is that Saoirse is going to be a great performance and that Margot is going to give an incredible performance. It, it looks to me kind of like her Harley Quinn performance where mm -hmm. she's able to just, or I, Tanya, where she's just able to inhabit this character and behave in a way with this, this face makeup on that you, you don't get that many chances as a woman to behave in a film. Yeah, and um, they marketed it as the uh, working title company that brought you Darkest Hour last year. To me, this looks exactly like that. Yeah. You know every beat it's going to take ahead of time. What you yeah. don't know is how beautiful the performances are going to be within it. Last year, yeah, I thought Lily James deserved an, a supporting actress uh, nomination, and I, I have a feeling that there's probably going to be maybe one or two supporting actors in here that'll maybe deserve a nomination as well. Yeah, uh, I would not be surprised with you they get some some acting nods i don't know that i love the look that they're going for but um you know every every yeah, film I deserves I, its I chance i don't think i know. love the look either but i yeah. i like that they went there well I, I, you know i sometimes you just have to see these things in context but margot robbie's look looks a little almost tim burton-esque to me as if and that, i think that's you know i just come out of that from a different tone that's the yeah. greatest compliment you could give it you're like <laughs> oh sounds good i'm in yeah 1989 yeah. batman signed me up yeah, first impressions, I think, are, you know, always exciting, but... Sometimes misleading. Will... It'll yeah. be interesting to see how the these go on to math, how we interpret the films and rate them Yeah. at yeah. the end of the year. But I guess, are you expecting to like the film, or are you expecting to give it a similar review to, like, The Meg? Ooh, I think it will be probably more compelling than The Meg. Okay. I, because I think I think the craft does look just stronger, but I would expect to just be more enthusiastic about other movies probably yeah. coming out in the fall. The the thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way is that they're depicting. I I don't get the sense that we're going to see a war, but they're mm. depicting soldiers marching and stuff. Yeah. And I really don't like when they kind of juxtapose the the idea of war, showing soldiers marching, but then not showing the battle. Yeah. It's it's fine in Macbeth but I don't want to see it really anywhere else. I'd rather just have a cutaway of them commanding soldiers and not watch them march. I, I yeah. think that's kind of a pointless thing. But if they do have a Braveheart battle scene, I'll retract this statement. But if, if they don't, then I really don't like spending screen time on that because I have a feeling it's going to be one of those two-hour, 15-minute films. 
yeah. where you could just cut out the soldiers marching and probably get down to 145. Probably. That would not surprise me. All right. Well, that was first impressions. Uh, let's take one last swig of these and see Cheers. where we're at. Yeah, I still love it. Still a good beer. I think, as always, I will finish it. Right. That's that's a clever way to put it. <laughs> and now we want to put you into the point of view of a man barreling down the road inside of a barrel from San Quentin Penitentiary. That man is... Humphrey Bogart. Bogey himself. And the film is Dark Passage. Directed by Delmer Daves from 1947, I believe, or 1948, one of the two. You did a little bit more research than me. I just know that I loved this particular picture and that you did not love it, so you're wrong. We'll be number one. And number two, you're wrong. Oh, so let's figure out why you're so wrong about this amazing picture. Those are fighting words. These are fighting words. I'll, I'll go to bat for this. This is like Bioshock the movie. So if I remember correctly, you give it five, five stars, but no heart. No correct? heart. Yeah. No Noirs are really hard to get a heart from me. I think the Maltese Falcon and Vertigo, mm. if you count Vertigo as one, yeah. um, are maybe the only ones that are ever going to get a heart from me. Yeah. Just because a heart's more of an emotional latching onto, and I don't know that i ever felt emotionally attached to humphrey's relationship with lauren mccall interesting i i found it very emotionally grounding and believable but i didn't fall in love with her Mm. or with him Mm. and that's normally more the heart for me is more about how emotionally invested i become with the characters themselves like i just saw juliet naked and i fell in love with rose Byrne. absolutely like and ethan hawk absolutely chris o'dowd absolutely like you fall in love with these characters yeah Watching this film, I didn't fall in love with these characters, but I was very emotionally grounded in them and loved watching their, them perform. Yeah, so I think I give hearts in for a similar reason, but it can sometimes just be for a love of the form. Yeah, for certain some, shots that for, are just indelible. And, and if I, I mean, I could have, ma- I could easily make a case for giving it a heart. Yeah, it was just one of those things where it didn't strike me when I hit log. Yeah. Yeah, in, you know th- this Never one know. could absolutely—it's a fifty-fifty swing. It's a, a week swing from now, you can me. see a still from it and be like, you know what? Oh, I can just rewatch the first eight minutes. Yeah, that point of view shot is just—I—that's my favorite thing out of all the noir stuff we watched. Even though I gave Blue yeah. out of five, yeah, my and a heart. This is my favorite thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know that the POV shot was actually my favorite thing about the movie. I do think it's the earliest uh, POV I've ever seen personally. Oh yeah, and I love point of view so i'm irrationally pleasured by the shot yeah yeah i mean for me so much of it, it's just a different kind of, of you know of cinema for me you know a lot of satisfaction comes from reaction shots right yes. thinking you know thinking about kind of the the hitchcock technique of showing an actor looking at something cutting to the thing they're looking at cutting back to the character and getting their reaction that's something that the I, POV I deprives you of it's just a different kind of experience which for me we do get isn't... there later in the film yeah but do you think that any other director is camera wise besides hitchcock probably i don't know if i have a good example off the top of my head because i but... i i used to make that argument and, and i've since shifted around where I, I don't know why Hitchcock is the way that he is, but he's the only auteur that I watch where his camera does lie to me. Yeah. Um, he's kind of Spielbergian in the way that he manipulates an image and takes you on a story. And that story is counterintuitive to the story that you're witnessing and through dialogue and storytelling mm-hmm. within the narration or uh, voice context of the film. Yeah. And I've, I don't experience... In, in any other film or any other filmmaker, the lie being presented the way that Hitchcock presents it. 
Yeah. And so for me, it, it is just a, it's an unreachable pinnacle that, that he made as mm. an auteur. Yeah. Uh, where I just I, I try to keep him out of my mind. It's like I try to keep Nolan out of my mind with modern film. Yeah. Because it, it's useless almost to compare the emotional grounding and beautiful visuals that Nolan gives me. The way that it's useless to compare what Hitchcock was capable of doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Maybe maybe to invoke Hitchcock and try to compare it to his approaches is unfair. But even just speaking more generally, I think um, a lot of you know aesthetic pleasure for me that I get from movies comes from uh, shot, reverse shot, which is just a different kind of um, storytelling. Shot, reverse shot, meaning uh, subject, witness. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, exactly. I, um, I get, so just to be transparent, I get almost zero from it. Yeah, just different takes. But uh, I think of the three noirs that we watched, I think to me this is the most tonally upbeat because yes. of how that romance plays such a central role, which is interesting. I thought because you gave it such a high score that you were maybe falling for it as hard as I did. I really was was swept up in Bogey and Bacall doing their thing. I mean, I was swept up in their enamoration with each other, but I was yeah. not enamored with either, if that makes any sense. Like, I was caught up in how they felt for each other, but I did not feel for either of them the way that they felt for each other. Mm. Whereas when I was watching Out of the Past in the beginning scene mm. when uh or the semi-beginning scene when they go to the first um town in mexico or florida acapulco acapulco yeah right when they're in acapulco i fell for both of them yeah and then after that i just completely fell out with the movie but um yeah that that was the like most emotional that i got and then if you want to talk about upbeat i feel like the naked city is the most upbeat. yeah I, I, just in, in a different way yeah, yeah yeah for sure Maybe I would describe Dark Passage as being somehow positive, it just in a more kind of classic It's, it's more consistently positive. He succeeds in getting out of prison, right? Yeah. He succeeds yeah. in knocking this fellow out and uh, yeah. getting away with this beautiful girl. Yeah. Uh, and, and all of that had me, because it's all point of view then, and I feel like I am him. Yeah. But once he gets his facial reconstruction surgery, and we kind of switched to that format, uh, the, the empathetic magnetism I was feeling kind of fell out. Yeah, um, I, I was still very emotionally grounded in them, but I, I experienced a, a shift of perspective because I was no longer the beholder. I was yeah. um, beholding the beholders. Yeah, I feel like of our main characters throughout these films, he's probably the least cynical and bitter. Um, yes. He's the easiest to root for, right? Other than Papillon, if we want to get to Papillon. Oh, we'll separate that conversation. I feel like there's a similarity here. Okay, we can maybe get there. Yeah, I don't think he's really kind of the uh, the anti-hero that you think of just when you think of Noir. Is like he's he's a bit more of a um, kind of a classic hero. Um, yeah, I think, I the, think more about John Wayne when I think of Humphrey Bogart than I think about like an anti-hero. Well, I guess I mean I can see. I, I don't know if I was saying that about Bogart in general because I think he does that in like the Maltese Falcon, where I feel like he's more morally ambivalent there um, mm. than he is in Dark Passage. I, I think I might just have movie star syndrome with him, where it's mm. kind of hard for me to in inhabit his aura as as a voyeur or something, um, and and not be thinking of the gravitas of his accolades of all the films that he's done and all the respect he has. Kind of like if you were to watch John Wayne. Yeah, you know, when I was kind of writing down my notes, I. I noted that this was an, an unambiguously happy ending, in my opinion. And to me, thematically, is very different from something like Out of the Past, 
which, as its title suggests, you can't outrun your past. That's sort of this idea that's running Certainly. throughout out of the past, where, as um, Vincent Perry, Bogart's character in Dark Passage, kind of succeeds. This tr- this transformation why, why he don't undergoes. You tell the listener exactly how it ends. Yeah. So. In the end, Bogart's character, Vincent Perry, does manage to get out of the United States. He goes to Mexico, I think, and... I think it's kind of up in the air. Yeah, where exactly he is, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, But prior to leaving, tells Lauren Bacall's character, I can't remember her name, to meet him when Mm -hmm. she can. And sure enough, when he's... he can't telegraph her or telegram her. Exactly. We see him waiting in a little... It looks like a cantina of some kind. He's sitting there alone, having a drink, and sure enough, the record that they've been playing together throughout the movie uh, comes on in the restaurant, and he turns to the entranceway, and there she is. I don't think that there's you know anything ambiguous about it. It's no, she begins it's to approach him, and I believe we fade to black. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to me, one of the kind of questions I had, I guess, just about this movie is why the sort of noir form made sense for this story, right? Like, to me, one of the things that makes noir so compelling is, as Josh Larson calls it, aesthetic thematic coherence, where this low-key photography, the really stark contrast of black and white, seems to just kind of fit with this contrast of good and evil or just moral ambiguity. Whereas this film, it has that same kind of look for parts of it. It does have moral ambiguity, I would argue. Let's go there, then. Okay, so there, there are crucial moments and choices throughout the film where you as the viewer and the voyeur so so viewer meaning when you're kind of the subject when you're still in the pov phase and then you as the voyeur when you're no longer in the pov phase there there are certain actions he takes where while you're watching you don't know if that's the right choice Mm. and you don't necessarily think you would have chosen differently but you are in that morally ambiguous space and i feel like that's exactly Mm. what morally ambiguity is when you don't know what you would do and if you were there would you be reacting with your fists the way that humphrey is Mm. So the first moment is um, while we're still POV and he's picked up in the slow-moving vehicle by the fellow who recurs. Um, yeah. And and he figures out exactly who he is and he punches him out. And then Lauren Bacall comes and picks him up. Yeah. Was that the right choice to punch him out? Hard to say. So it's morally ambiguous, right? Yeah. To me, it's a smaller example, I think, of some of the moral ambiguity that we that we see in you know in, in other noirs. But but I think I see where you're coming from. I, yeah. I certainly haven't watched as many noirs as recently as you. Yeah. So yeah. I, I definitely understand you're coming at this from fresh off Brute Force within the last yeah. couple months. Yeah. Fresh off Maltese Falcon in the last month, I believe, um, whereas I'm years distanced from yeah. the Maltese Falcon. But I, I did see Vertigo earlier this year, and I would say that that's the best version of moral ambiguity ever, but I don't necessarily mm. think that's a noir film. I would agree. And I, that's just the best film ever, really. We have these moments of uncertainty and moral ambiguity continuously throughout Dark Passage. Mm. And I think that it was a strong auteur choice mm. to depict it POV and depict it as a noir. Yeah. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that it's the best choice, but I think it was a strong choice that I personally loved. I don't I don't know if it would be better as a classical detective story of the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could be better as a detective story presented with an extra character yeah. and have Humphrey play the extra character trying to find him and then they get away from Humphrey and are in love and it's kind of a happy ending where the detective's holding his hands up in the air at the end. Yeah. You know, that yeah. that could equally be a good film, but I I think that the noir film let us be on the side of an anti-hero who's not really an anti-hero, which is, yeah. I think, kind of nice and particularly probably a, a derivation of the themes and how men were feeling at the time in mm. 1948 
having done what they'd done, coming yeah. back to America and feeling like they were in prison, right? A lot yeah. of uh, war veterans did settle in California because of the housing opportunities, and they were kind of in prison in California of their experiences at war, and they were trying to figure out how to move past it, and I, I think that this was very much of that nature. Kind of like yeah. German Impressionism in the 20s came out of the Germans losing the First World War. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, it was a question that kind of came to my mind, but that um, I don't necessarily think, um, I didn't mean to imply that Like, I think it's to its detriment, that it sort of used this classic noir um, form, you know, in and uh, in, in applied it to a less cynical story than we're used to. I think it's actually kind of what I liked about the film is that it manages to pull it off. Yeah. I think that is like actually a strength of the film and to me I think you're right like to me I, there was some moral ambiguity there I think I, I think I found it in different places like I think I found it in the uh, the cab driver who picks him up 100% um, no that that would if I would have kept going with moral ambiguity right I, like yeah. the capstone is certainly him having his rerun in with the truck driver who I just mentioned yeah. throwing him off but yeah. before that there's these romantic tension moments um, yep. there's moments where Lauren Bacall has the other gentleman knock on the door or when she's lying to her friend friend quotation marks um, yep. there's lots of them but I, I think that the first one and the deepest one is the truck driver and then later mm. what happens to the truck driver because that is the only scene where he causes someone's death hmm Whereas all other deaths within the film are by choice and volition of the person. Yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 beating up of the guy that um, picked him up to me, it, it felt you know too maybe too impulsive to, to to read too much into it. Like it 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 was a sheer matter of just making sure his escape was successful. Yes. But I see the ambiguity in it. But with the cab driver who leads him to the surgeon who's going to give him this and the surgeon. And, oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know he he doesn't even want money for having brought him to the surgeon. It's like what what is this guy getting out of helping Bogart get this? surgery yes. done and to me that's something you see in in some noirs is sort of just a morbid curiosity in some in, in kind of enabling people to do things that you know maybe shouldn't be done you well, know he's, he's we, enabling we, we a criminal he recognizes faces and he can recognize a good person right but like it's not you know he doesn't have anything immediate to gain from it right to me no he he's certainly acting out of uh strength of character yeah yeah or weakness of character yeah, he doesn't. He, he doesn't know whether or not Vincent actually committed this crime. I don't remember. Maybe Vincent claims his innocence to him or something he like does. that. And yes. he maybe he convinces he, he him. He asks him in the cab, I believe, and then he explains very briefly as Humphrey's bound to do. Yeah, and that shadow cast lighting. Yeah, that was I. This had my favorite lighting and shadow work mm, out yeah. of all three of the noirs we watched that are classical. Yeah, if we're not counting Blowout as classical, these are definitely. Yeah, this is definitely my favorite lighting. Uh, cinematography, everything is by far my favorite out of the Yeah, film. yeah, for sure. Yeah, the the so couple. You agree, I, You're on the record. I, I enjoyed it quite a quite a bit. All right, good. So I can. We're both very positive on it. I mean, we I, can split well, hairs just, about the stars. Just but... wait till I destroy you during Out of the Past. In the next <laughs> <segment>. <laughs> But yeah, I mean the the cinematography is great. One of the scenes that I you know noted in my review is when Vincent comes back after the surgery to his buddy's house and his buddy's dead, and the camera is like not just low; it's actually like beneath the floor because it's looking up and yes. you're seeing both the body and 
Bogart standing over mm-hmm. him. It's just a really striking shot. He still has his bandages on at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and he uh, picks up the trumpet. And yeah. yeah. You're thinking, no, don't get your fingerprints on it, you stupid fool. You know, you're kind of emotionally invested. Yeah. I also noted some of the deep focus where we get shots of Vincent Perry in the foreground and, you know, cops in the background. Yes. And it looks like they're always just on his heels. Um, really striking shots. The Some of the shots where he's exiting buildings, navigating the darkness, um, mm. hiding behind bushes, fleeing from cops. Um, it, it's, it's all very striking. I would have had to go back. I didn't and spend more time kind of studying exactly how they were lighting those mm-hmm. to, to figure out exactly why it's so much better than Out of the Past was for me. And then yeah. it's very easy to explain why the Naked City wasn't good. It's because they didn't control the lighting of New York. Yeah, yeah, on location. Yeah. But it, it wasn't overwrought which is my biggest complaint with Out of the Past. Mm, interesting. So, I loved it. You thought it was better than Out of the Past? Oh, no, no, no. I thought Out of the Past was my I favorite was of the three. I was trying to trick you into it, but okay. Just to clarify. <laughs> um, I think now might be a natural uh, time for me to explain to the listener how to tell if you're watching a noir, mm. and you can tell me if I'm incorrect or correct during these um, slightly mocking points. Got it. What do you um, have? So first, I'll I'll be serious and explain that film noir is a film of death in all senses of the. That's a direct quote out of the panorama. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a great encapsulation of what film noir is, mm-hmm. and it's particularly French in its you know translation. It's nicely dramatic. So this is how to tell if you're watching a noir: is there bourbon? Quite prominent. Are the men wearing ties? They often are. Do the women have shiny hair? Oh, very shiny hair. Do the women have more than one gentleman caller at once? That's a good point. Do the punches have sound effects? Oh, we're going to talk about punches and out of the path. Are there cabbies? Got to get to where you're going. Is the past revisiting the subject of the film? Mm, that's a good one. Is there smoking? There's a lot of smoking and out of the past. If you can check next to each one of these details, you're watching a film noir. It's a pretty concise summation. You think you have all those points in Out of the Past? I definitely do. I think you do. Yes. <laughs> I think that the only one that gets away from it is The Naked City, and I think that's because of the originality of the auteur behind The Naked City. Yeah. Even though I think that in passing, all of those things are present, but I don't think that they are the focus the way that they are in A Dark Passage and Out of the Past and The Maltese Falcon and probably Brute Force and The Night of the Hunter, you know, because those are all more staged, whereas the cabbies in um, The Naked City would be in depth of frame. Mm. Uh, People smoking would be more in depth of frame. People drinking would be more in depth of frame. They would be literal people living in New York. Yeah. And not subjects of the film. Yeah, yeah. I cannot remember the quote off the top of my head, but I know Roger Ebert had some kind of funny quote about Out of the Past and his just astonishment at how many cigarettes are smoked in this movie. Yes. That was like his first comment in the review. He was like, my God, these people smoke a lot. Yep. <laughs> but, so, uh, uh, Out of the Past, let's let's get to it. I'm, yeah. I'm happy to get done with handling it, so let's, let's yeah. get, out of, get it out of my past. <laughs> this was my favorite of the three i gave it a five out of five with the heart this was my least favorite yeah i think this had everything i could want in a noir this had everything i don't like in noir interesting it's still good though i won't dispute it's good maybe even great the pacing uh the overwrought lighting like i said Mm. the over development of characters that end up not being central to the story in any way um all, all these side turns we take and then we go back to the same building at the i just i didn't like it and I think that it might be because I knew the story before it happened, and I was really disappointed that I wasn't surprised. Oh, which you, is kind of like your complaint with Mary Queen of Scots, where you know I'm 
having my cake and eating it too in this moment, but I really wasn't surprised by a single ounce of it. You mean you just saw where it was going or you were literally like familiar with the narrative? I, I was familiar with the narrative because I've watched enough and read enough stories where I just felt familiar. And then yeah, as it yeah. developed, I knew that the relationship that I saw in the town with that girl was less honest and less um, powerful than the other relationship. Mm. So I knew that that relationship was playing second fiddle. So I think that the emotional mm. gravitas that happens where she finds out at the very, very end that he was going to leave from the mute meant kid. nothing yeah. to me because mm. I already knew it. And I think that if I hadn't already known it, that could have been like a, at least half a star. Yeah. You know, kind of like in Searching Yesterday. I think that if I would have been more emotionally pulled by that film in mm. any of its moments, I would have been able to find the four and a half and fives that everyone else is giving it. But we're yeah. giving it a three. Yeah, you know, it's just that's where I'm at with it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. We just this hit us differently. To me, this had everything I could want in a noir. I mean, I think this isn't necessarily a strength, but I think it does have most of the things that people just think of when they think of noir. You know, it's got your private eye, it's got the femme fatale, it's got your bourbon, it's got men in ties, it's got women with shiny hair, it's got women with too many gentlemen collars, it's got all of it. It does. It has you know the double dealing. Um, it has that moral ambivalence and cynicism I, to it. So um, I did love Kirk Douglas. Oh, yeah. He was Fantastic great. Fantastic performance. Uh, yeah. Loved watching that. Great yeah. experience there. Yeah. I really, really liked Robert Mitchum, as well as Jane Greer. I think Jane Greer as Kathy Moffat was, is by far my favorite femme fatale of the noirs I've she, seen. She was my favorite actor other than Kirk in the film. But mm. for me, Lauren Bacall is still top tier oh man i would pick jane greer any day particularly i mean a, a handful of scenes but i think of the scene when they go to the cabin kathy robert mitchum's character and his partner catches up with them and they have their fight at the cabin and kathy sort of withdraws to the wall as they're punching each other and she kind of has this placid look on her face that's just kind of a neutrality of it's, what will it, happen it's perfect to me in in its ambiguity of, of who would who she wants to win this fight and how she can play it for herself yes. or is she genuinely concerned for Robert Mitchum's character I think from start to finish I think um, there is always to me this chance that she does feel something for him and okay, this possibility so that she's looking out for she's herself. 100% the best at moral ambiguity out of the three that we watched hmm. uh, actually out of all the films we watched she's got the best moral ambiguity even agree. including sharp objects like absolutely the best moral ambiguity and if i was reading it off of that like i think yeah. you might be leaning towards that's what i would Part go with it. but yeah. emotional investment i just was drawn in more by lauren bacall because she was kind mm. of a raw nerve of um emotion and, and openness and on trying to share her wealth trying to do the best that she could for someone she knew was innocent mm -hmm. um and i really believe that she was in love with him and i yeah. think that that makes her a much more forgivable and earnest character and I like my oh, characters yeah. to be forgivable and earnest and good, oh, mostly. Yeah. Um, I, you know, this is just, you know, pick the week and it'll change. But that's just the yeah. way that I was leaning when I was watching these. But if I would have been leaning the other way, you're absolutely right. She's the best at moral ambiguity by far. Yeah, I think there. Are, you're right that there aren't too many characters here that are super forgivable. And they all die at the end. So, you know it's the, the deaf character it's hard. i would say is the most or the mute is the most forgivable mm. character he, he survives um he does but uh what else I, I really really like the dialogue um to me this felt like the best um hard-boiled dialogue and the delivery from robert mitchum i thought was just uh just so satisfying i think about 
a handful of lines um, that I'd put down in my notes. One was when he meets Kathy Moffat on the beach in Acapulco a mm-hmm. couple nights in a row, and she, you know, finally confesses. They kind of confess to each other about, you know, having um, had this past, and he's there to chase her, and she's saying, you know, but I, I didn't steal from him, you know, don't you believe me, don't you believe me? And he says, baby... I don't care. To me, that's that's ambivalence. He knows. I think he knows, and he can't resist um, the yes. temptation of this femme fatale. To me, that's just just the perfect setup. Man, what were the other couple lines? There's one when they go to the uh, casino. I think they're still in Acapulco, and she's playing roulette. I think, and he says after she rolls the dice, "That's not how you win." And she says, um, "There is no way to win." And he said, "There's a way to lose more slowly." Another just great line i mean yeah. there's i mean it's hard to like dissect these lines um i just well, the, like them that, it's, it's just that the hard-boiled kind of literary feel behind it and to me it's partly the dialogue but it's also the delivery from robert mitchum in a lot of cases but th- but those lines are particularly accurate about the not just that particular film but the noir genre and and evoking the sense of of depravity and, and death yeah. that, that, that that quote that I read from the, the book evokes. Film noir yeah. is a genre of death. It, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's about dying more slowly, right? It's, it's about the, these lingering moments of joy and existential bliss yeah. before the inevitable trying to drive to get away and getting shot by her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. One thing I had read about Mitchum before was that he referred to his dialogue as the lyrics rather than the dialogue which i think uh is most palpable here for me where it feels like it's not just did um, you know that before you watched the film uh i did yeah i would have appreciated getting a text about that That oh that's changed my viewing experience oh yeah yeah Yeah, so uh, yeah little details definitely change everything absolutely yeah yeah oh absolutely it was a couple months back there was like a, a feature or an article in film comment about Robert Mitchum. That was one, you know, note that struck out to me. And I was like, I, I'm, I think I'm feeling that here. I think there's something kind of musical about like, you know, the, the rhythm of this in, vocal in retrospect, delivery. I can kind of understand it, but w- without knowing it while watching it, I don't think I could pick up on it in the same way. Yeah. 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 For sure. But you're definitely um, pulling these quotes as if they are uh, musical lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple other things in that article that I thought were interesting. Oh, one one was actually just a description. This is just pure poaching of good criticism, but um, it was describing his you know uh, style of acting and describing it as as going on mostly beneath the surface. And the description was that, he's very much uh, a placid. Yeah, that the um, the energy sort of emanates from below. And the description was that it's like warmth from coals when you blow on them. Mm. And I thought that was just a really nice line. That, that is. Um, I think who, the I'll have to look up who wrote that. I don't remember off the top of my head and put it, you know, on the website. But I, you know, I, I think it's it's these kinds of things about his performance that sort of make those feel not just like uh, lines from a script. You know, they they somehow feel a little bit more alive. It, it, he his performance has a lot of depth to it, but to me, the the outer shell of his performance would would be, or the outer the outer shell of the film rather, is somewhat hollow. It's filled mm. by these excellent performers and performances. Um, and you could even say that the screenplay has great pacing and all these details, right? It's a tight 134, I think, or hour and 34 yeah. minutes. Um, yeah. But it doesn't do anything that I don't expect it to do at any point. I, I, I can't think of... I, I mean, I guess I didn't expect 
the boy to get the original girl that he was lying to about feeling more for her than for the other uh Pam Greer, Jane Greer, sorry. Jane Greer. Yeah, Jane yeah. Greer. Yeah, I, I didn't expect her to fall back in love with someone else or become someone else's love interest. But that's yeah. like the only thing where, it, you know, it's just a 50-50 coin flip. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. everything that normally would go that way in that particular plot structure did go that way in that particular plot structure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think that maybe I, I might just be a little bit too close to caring about what's typical and not mm. maybe taking a step back and appreciating form and performance here. Yeah. I could easily see me in a decade revisiting this and, and giving it, you know, more of a four, four and a half, like, like I think you did. Yeah. Or did you give it a perfect five? I, I give it a five with yeah. a heart. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't think I, could, <laughs> I don't think I could ever emotionally resonate with it throughout the way that you did. I did in Acapulco, but not after. Mm. But I, I I do think I could get closer to your vein if I if I took some time away. Yeah. 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 I would agree. The story is. I would agree. It's exactly kind of what you expect it to be. I mean, maybe you don't expect. Maybe you don't necessarily expect Robert Mitchum's character to die, and for most of the gang to die like they do. But I would agree. I think the. The narratives, you know, is um, kind of exactly what you might expect from a I, noir. But to me, also it's... we both just recently watched *Ellie Confidential*. Oh yeah, yeah. The whole time, like when I started this, I was like, okay, everyone's gonna die. Yeah, you know, it was just one of those things where I just kind of put my hands up in the air and was done with it. You know, yeah. Um, and I didn't let the performances or the performances didn't work on me. It's not that I didn't let them, but I, mm-hmm. what I gave to them, they they didn't continue to give to me. And, and I think that the tonal shifts of the character maybe got in the way for me of mm. enjoying the performances consistently because they yeah. did shift their perspectives and their emotions quite consistently yeah yeah but you um, pick that up as moral ambivalence and uh, ambiguity and and you really enjoyed that particular vein of it yeah so I, I think maybe if i go back and try to mine that same vein later i i could pr- maybe get more of what you're getting yeah yeah and just in regards to the the style i mean i think that's maybe what you know did kind of surprise me is you that's interesting you described it as, as overwrought sometimes um like it was particularly just too the heavy-handed lighting. absolutely um, the lighting of that film is very overwrought it's like watching a stage play yeah lit for an audience um that, that is looking at the stage yeah rather than a viewer that is looking at something that has light on it yeah, right, right, because we have a television. Even televisions yeah. at this point in time are, are lit themselves. Yeah. And we we are presented with shadows that are at least at three angles constantly. Yeah. Which means that we know... And, and the other thing is that we know that there's only one light source in this room yeah. quite constantly. And sometimes there's no light source in a room. And we yeah. have bright stage pageant lighting giving yeah. us a triple angle shadow. Yeah. One on the left wall, one on the right wall, one in the back corner. Yeah. One in the back wall, one on the left side of the floor, one on the right side. Just too much for Constantly. you? Constantly. Overhead lighting outside. Overhead yeah. lighting outside, yeah, that drove me insane. Really? Yes. To me, that's just... To me, I totally get it. Like, I'm not... There's no way, like, I'm trying to, like, invalidate your feeling. Like, that completely makes sense. Stop wanting naturalistic lighting in the 40s, you son of a bitch. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to me, if you think of, you know, like, if I think about film noir as you know sort of this this combination of hard-boiled detective novels and german expressionism where they were literally like you know painting sets black on one side white on the other because it was cheap and it was to evoke a feeling that they couldn't otherwise do Mm -hmm. that's okay with me 
for it to be dramatic because it's sort of conducive to the atmosphere. But it so took you out I, of it. No, that I, makes I sense. absolutely agree with you that that's okay. But I think the tone out of the past tries to play is a realism tone. And mm. I think that when the realism juxtaposes the choices made to depict the artistry mm. within the film, that's where I no longer fall. And that's mm. where, like, when when Dark Passage is making the choice of attempting to depict things in POV and mm. attempting to show us lighting outside, at most they only ever show one extra shadow cast from the wrong direction. Whereas mm. in Out of the Past, consistently, constantly, it's three different shadows coming from all different sources... <laughs> that are brighter than the actual light source that is in the room, right? So we'll see a lamp within a room, and then we'll have shadows cast from separate light fixtures that aren't even that light fixture. Yeah. And and the the tone that Out of the Past has is, I would say, is hyper-realism. Okay, yeah. As far as a noir, like, there's all these things going on under the surface. You don't know whose side she's going to pick. He, Mm. you don't, I I mean, the average viewer probably doesn't know if he's invested. I'm sure you didn't know if he's invested in the femme femme fatale or the original girl from town. Yeah. Right. This is kind of a hyper-realism style of storytelling. Yeah. And when you make choices that take away from that storytelling choice to depict your story, I personally don't find it to elevate the subject rather to detract from it yeah that's interesting i mean it's, it's just a different impression like i don't know i don't it, i don't know that it felt like realism to me um to me it it, it felt about as about as kind of stagey as as most other 40s movies to me um it's certainly the the film but i'm not i'm talking about specifically the narrative structure and the characters yeah i believe yeah. that gone with the wind is pageantry yeah okay wizard of oz is pageantry Right, mm-hmm. it's kind of the surrealism, beautiful, fantastical folktale. Yeah, out of the past, I think is a lot more of realism than even Dark Passage. Dark Passage has kind of a, a fairy tale element to it of, you know, being set free. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- even the dark or the naked city is kind of this like almost haunted house. Uh, or you know, you can make this argument. Yeah, out of the past was like a, a, a piece of realism. It, it was all of these different people in this town, yeah, uh, and their fixtures in life um, from San yeah. Francisco to that other place that I don't remember the name of. Uh, is Northern California, I believe. The small town. Yeah. Yeah, Northern California. But it, it's yeah. kind of realism, right? Like it's a yeah. real little town. It's it's really what it's like to be in San Francisco. It's all these different details, yeah. and I, I felt like it was trying to express itself as realism, but. It, um, in, in its writing and in, in its tone and its character work, I think that it succeeded in in having realism in that noir genre. Yeah. But the way that they depicted it, specifically that lighting, yeah, detracts from those choices. It'd be like if, um, when watching The Revenant, if Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy, and the Bear always had three different shadows cast. Yeah. Behind mm. and to the left and right of them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the mm. same sort of realism to me. It's basically yeah. a man fighting nature, which is his, the nature of his past and his past choices. Yeah. But with, you know, just because noir is so lighting centric, you're either going to lean one way or another, and I just lean very far away from the choices yeah. made. Yeah. I think we split. 
I mean, I, I just, I, I, I can't characterize it as a realism. To me, it's, it's first and foremost about mood, atmosphere, and those kinds of qualities and texture to which the light contributes and to which that dialogue contributes. Um, I don't think, so, I don't so think don't people talk like, like the, that. The tone and the characters and the settings were trying to reach a certain type of realism. Not in the way that I normally describe movies as, as realism. I agree it's perhaps a slightly more realistic kind of sequence of events um, because it's just a matter of, you know, people kind of in and out of each other's lives. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, these are, to me, these are, you know, kind of theatrical performances, like especially Kirk Douglas. Like, I don't know Absolutely. that I, that doesn't, that doesn't feel like realism to me. And I don't know that the, the no, dialogue when, when he arrives like in realism. Acapulco, it certainly is kind of the surreal moment that to me went against the grain of the film is realism. And that's why it felt kind of like an almost out-of-body experience of horror. Like, holy shit, he's here now. And oh, the way that, that Robert oh, Mitchum gotcha, gotcha. plays that within the cafe and getting them into the car and everything was yeah. wonderful. Yeah. But it to, to me, it went for a realism tone. And I recognize mm. there are differences in um, film realism and n- novel realism and just the word yeah. realism. And, and then we go back to the 40s realism at that point in time means something different but just a general yeah. sense i felt like this tried to be real yeah and i think that the lighting was surreal yeah that's fair okay <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave yeah, it yeah. all right naked city Would uh, you you, like you know the director you know the year i don't recall any of these why don't you give our our listeners a nice little lead in here uh, this is directed by jules dassin 1947 1948 i forget I think Which it had of those a two years? interspersed release based on the, the book that we were reading um, between its worldwide release um, and its release in France and the uh, United States. I think it had its yep. 47 release here in America. Got it. Uh, shot primarily on location in New York City, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Yes. The titular Naked City. Uh, sort of a cop procedural, yes. I would call it, with uh, no actors or actresses that I know by name. But Me that's neither. not a I was hoping detriment. that you might know the uh, the Irish uh, police commissioner, whatever no. his lieutenant perhaps would be his title. I should know his name because I, he was great. I loved that performance so, yeah. so, so much. Yeah, I was sort of shocked that I kept waiting for him to become like or just be a side character. I'm like, yes. nope, he's our main guy. Yeah. And it's and great. It, he's just steering the wheel of all these other cops the whole time. They, they just show our femme fatale arguably yeah. uh, being manhandled and then we see her dead body and that's all we get yeah and I, I think that in a panorama of american film noir they specifically call out how this is the kind of the most condensed and accurate depiction of of what uh, noir in in a moment is it's mm. these two men mugging this woman and taking her jewels and I loved this film. I loved its moments. I loved um, when our side character goes home and has a moment of intimacy with his wife. And then mm. she explains that he has to beat him for a very acceptable reason, even though their parents try not to beat oh, their yeah. children. And, and she kind of makes this moral plea that, you know, I don't care about that anymore. I care that her son doesn't walk into the road by himself because he's four and because I, I don't want him to die. Yeah. You know, this is a this is where, you know, it's kind of unanimously acceptable to hit a kid because it's very important that you instill in them that they do not walk into traffic, that they do not put themselves at risk of being hurt by a bullet or a car. It's the same idea. Yeah. Travels fast, made of metal, will kill. Yeah. Um, 
and that kind of grounded it in this emotional certainty that I loved where yeah. moving forward I, I knew exactly after that scene how I felt about everyone and I was just happy to be alive in New York yeah and I felt yeah. like I was experiencing the 40s kind of it had uh, it had moments that were troubling like when every single woman was wearing high heels on the subway mm-hmm. I yeah. was particularly like Jesus Christ we've come a long way yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funny, like, to, you know, I, I kind of knew in advance that this was known for its location shooting because we read yes. the book. And I, I kind of thought to myself, like, hmm, like, I wonder if this is not going to, like, resonate all that, like, strongly with me because now, like, location shooting is, like, not uncommon. But it absolutely does. Like, I think this and, is and kind of... unique because yeah. we've seen all these other classic films. Did, yeah. D- did you feel like it felt unique when oh, you were yeah. looking at it? Yeah, yeah. Just a really unique feel and, and sense of place, you know, just just for being specific and, and kind of direct. Like, it's kind of, you know, strange how, like, I can't talk about, like, something, maybe maybe we can't get, maybe we can get there, but I can't talk about something, like, the camera did necessarily to you know what it showcase do? this city in certain ways. Anything bad. Yeah, it just That's did what it needed. That's the best way of explaining it. It did what it needed did to do. It never did anything bad. Yeah. It never had moments it didn't need to have or moments that didn't pay off or contribute to tone it yeah. never gave us a moment of a bad performance yeah but it never gave us great performances it never gave us beautiful camera angles it never gave us something we hadn't seen before it never gave us something we haven't seen better but it did give yeah. us consistently good versions of all of those things all of the time yeah and i think yeah. that's why i just liked it I, I yeah. didn't love it, but I liked it a whole lot, start to finish. Yeah. I think that its strength in, is, and maybe its greatest strength that I don't know that I could compare to an, to another example, has nothing to do with the camera, and that's the narration. Mm. The narration of this of the naked city, and, and the way that they kind of depict uh, America through this voice narration, is I think my favorite voice narration that I've that I can think of. Yeah. Just period. Ever. Maybe Fantasia could outdo that, but, you know, that's comparing heaven with heaven. You know, that's comparing paradise to paradise. That's that's high high regards from me. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of jarring because, I don't know about you, but I half expected it to stop after it it went... uh, And it it does have moments of stopping where you don't expect it to come back, and then it does. I thought it was just going to be for the introduction because it's announcing the the cast and the director, and I thought that's just in place of... And it kind of felt like a technical film. Yeah. Intro, yeah. almost, right? Like, I was yeah. like, what am I watching? This is very odd in tone. Yeah. Yeah, you had described it as tonally upbeat, and it's like, I, I feel that. On the other hand, like, I kind of feel a certain pessimism about it because of how this this murder is sort of, you know, drenched in all these other, you know, cuts that we're getting of just the city at work. Yes. Um, and it's sort of feeling like... No, it certainly mm-hmm. feels like there's more depravity to yeah. happen. But the reason I, I think it's upbeat, and maybe I can cut you off before you get there, and, and you'll agree, is that they show that there are moments where the the Irish police leader, I'll just call him that because I don't know his accurate title, yeah. um, tells rookie cop who's kind of trying to leap to conclusions, why don't you wait for the, uh, the man to earn his paycheck? And then he mm. comes and he inspects the crime scene and he offers these things that none of the other officers could offer. Yeah. And the film, that's like a consistent theme with this film. Everyone that's earning their paycheck is doing their jobs. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you go. They're doing their jobs. And if they're not doing their jobs, slowly, deliberately, with proof and evidence, the police are finding out. Yeah. And they're getting them, and they're convicting them, and they're arresting them. 
Yeah. Or the individual dies, like, at the very end. Yeah. And I feel like that, you know, it's as upbeat kind of as a noir gets that isn't yeah. romantic, where it's like, yeah. all these crimes will be solved, and they will be yeah. solved deliberately and accurately. This is yeah. a false depiction, but it's still, like, a, it, it's very much an American romanticization picture of um, trying to re-enamor war vets with their country, I think. Yeah. It's it's yeah. of that post-war veneer. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's certainly optimistic to kind of see, like, the system the system of justice kind of working, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the police... And, and to see, like, the, the home life, like I said earlier, of this police officer with yeah. his wife and his son. It, it was so Dick Van Dykish. Yeah. You know, it's it's just pleasant. Yeah. It's just, like... And this is a good thing. Like I think you could you you could just as easily see you know the city going to sleep like it does at the end of the film and it waking up the next day and another murder happening happening. That's right? that's like the ending we'd want, and then we'd want the Naked City too, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Like you know that the you know that despite the system you know being able to sort of you know work work through these these murders as it as they're supposed to, that murder and theft are as ordinary as all the other stuff that we see the citizens of New York City doing yes. throughout the film. It's sort of this just like harmony of like good and evil. Like the bad things are going to happen, the good guys are going to keep fighting it and the city will just go on doing its thing. Yep. Love that um kind of biological expressionism is I don't know if anyone's actually ever uh, or if any film critics ever put words to it, but I kind of gravitate towards this stuff. Jeff Nichols particularly mm. has this biological expressionism where he depicts uh, roads kind of as cataracts and arteries of a living mm. system. Um, particularly in Midnight Special, he does this where he kind of yeah. shows one antibody of a father and a son um, fighting against the system to uh, free themselves. And I think The Naked City also d- demonstrates. New York City as this living body that has these different immune systems and antibodies and infections and it kind of handles them at this overhead level yeah. and I really love that expression on, on film the, yeah. it's almost an overhead or, or side third person shot looking down almost always yeah. at the subjects yeah I feel like it's a real cliche to, to say something like oh yeah the character or the, the, the location is much a character as you know, the people themselves. But at this point in time, it wasn't. I kind of feel like we should just say that about this film and stop saying that about all others. And yes. just give it because to this Because this is film. kind of the first <laughs> film that did it, as yeah. far as I'm aware. And it's, yeah. you know, it's the best until, until arguably the best noir film ever. Do you know what that film's called? I don't know what you're going to throw out there. What do you got? Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Ah... I know this is a personal favorite. Tune Town. Maybe we need just a separate podcast devoted to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Or just Rabbit. all of my favorites. Let's just do that going forward. We'll, we'll spend uh, nine podcasts on Interstellar, breaking yeah. down Matthew McConaughey's performance and those nine just minutes of Anne Hathaway's lines. <laughs> <laughs> I loved The Dark Passage the most. I think you were the least receptive on that. That's not fair. I, I mean... If, if we're going to compare, I think I really, really loved all three of these movies. I think Out okay, of the Past so is my favorite. Okay, so you recommend all of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I would certainly recommend all of them. I do think that the right way to watch them is the way that we watched them. Dark Passage, Out of the Past, The Naked City. I think that that's yep. the most conducive because then you begin noir with this point of view shot and mm. you end it with this third person out of character. Yeah. Um, the character is the city shot. Um, yeah. And in between, you 
you just arrive at, at different um, tones. And I think that, that these were three really good selections by you that, that gave very different feelings and very mm. different tones. Even though all of them had men in ties and women with shiny hair. Lots of cigarettes, lots, lots of alcohol. Lots of bourbon. <laughs> all good things. All right. Well, that's been our, our three classics in the uh, film noir genre based on a book that Michael had read called the Panorama of American Film Noir. Translated from the French by Paul Hammond. Interesting book. Glad we did it. Yes, and we recommend it to all listeners that are budding film critics. Absolutely. Um, next, we're going to dig into uh, another noir film. It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. But let's get into, I think, maybe one of the strongest pieces of artistry that we've talked about on the show, period. Brian De Palma's Blowout. Mm. I think this might be my favorite Brian De Palma film, and maybe my favorite John Travolta performance. Let's back up. What other De Palma movies have you seen? Um, recently, I just saw Mission Impossible. I haven't seen Dress to Kill. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and then I've seen his recent films. I just don't know the names of them. I've, I've yeah. kind of kept up with them. Do you, do you know kind of his titles off the top of your head? The ones I have seen are Carrie. Gotcha. Seen that. The Untouchables. I haven't seen that one. That's one that I'm looking for. Uh, Passion. Rachel McAdams. I haven't and seen that either. I, that's the one that I wanted to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a very terrible rating, but I think that I'm probably going to like it like I like Twixt. Uh, I think those are the ones I've seen, um, oh, okay. in addition to Blow Up. Th- he's uh, got a few more recent features as yeah, well um, that I've seen. I just don't know the names of them. I'm blanking on him as well, but you're right. He He's still very much going, as yeah. far as I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, particularly we just, or I just watched the De Palma film, uh, or the De Palma documentary from yeah. Noah Baumbach, and when they show the segments of him explaining filming Untouchables, it mm. just makes me want to watch Untouchables. But, um, yeah. so kind of everyone's favorite film from him that I think is actually a very poorly made film and a film I didn't enjoy at all. And I think that he kind of agrees. And I believe he blames Oliver Stone is Scarface. Oh, I have seen Scarface actually. forgot about that. And well, it's been a while, but yeah, I, I particularly don't find much value in that film and I think that yep. particularly the three and a half hour runtime maybe it's 347 Ooh. is very unnecessary that's brutal um, and w- within the documentary he does explain that um, Oliver Stone had to be thrown off the set about halfway through filming because he, w- he would go up to the actors and tell them to do different things mm. than Brian was asking them to do and that yep. kind of helped me understand why the tone shifted so entirely but it also reaffirmed to me that I'd rather have Oliver Stone make that film because yeah. the first half is by far my favorite half. Yeah. And the second half is not. And that's the half where he had complete control of his actors. So Yeah. Um yeah. but anyways, blowout. I love it. Start to finish I love it. I love its flourishes. I love its touches. I love the chase scene, even though De Palma hates chase scenes. Mm. Chase scene at the end, amazing. Uh the parade scene evoked that Vincent Minnelli mm. um I don't even remember the name of that film, but there's this Vincent Minnelli film that ends at a fair 
mm. um, with a shootout, and it particularly reminded me of that. Um, I, I loved this film from start to finish. I, uh, I, I, I personally view it as a Hitchcockian deconstruction of all Hitchcock films, mm-hmm. almost, and kind of putting them back together in the sound effects. Um, in the introduction to the film, I had no idea what was happening uh, for those first four minutes. Oh yeah, it is a little jarring. They're a separate film, and I just, just like Dark Passage, I fell in love. I yeah. just fell in love with the film then and there, mm-hmm. and it, it would have had the work to disillusion me, and yeah. it did not. Yeah, I was with it right from the get-go. I think the opening sequence, this POV shot from like a serial killer, psycho's point of view, is um, one of the best ones of the movie. Um, it's it's all the the lurid kind of uh, sensibility that you expect from De Palma. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't think that, like, that many directors can manage to, like, reference other great works as well as he does and not make it feel like he's just just taking them for his own. I absolutely you know, agree. For, 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 for his own purposes. You know, it's not uh, it's not appropriation. Yes, uh, it, I it think, is reverberation. Uh, yeah, I think it's kind of similar in a... It's kind of similar to Tarantino in that regard. Um, like, I think about Pulp Fiction is, you know, sort of... Sort ing- says he. Yeah, yeah, sort of, you know, these being... Or Reservoir Dogs, more sure, says he. Who, who do you think about with Pulp Fiction? Uh, I, I think about homages to, like, the French New Wave. Gotcha, um, gotcha, gotcha. You know, Travolta and Uma Thurman dancing, and, and that being a, an homage to Jean-Luc Godard. I forget which movie. You know, there's some, that similar kind of little dance in. Yeah, I think that that is kind of hard to, like, really dig into sometimes. Like, why, in some cases, it just feels more like poaching than it does just borrowing and repurposing. I, I think it's something about their the strength of um, frame, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, it's not just the, the confidence of the camera, but it's the strength of what they have in their frame. That kind of, it, it evokes, like, its flourishes evoke reverence to something before. But what's in the frame also makes it this this new version of it. it yeah. It's respecting it and building on top of it. Yeah. At least that's how Blowout made me feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, it was partly just that opening shot. I mean, I, I could see somebody saying like, oh, yeah, this is just like, you know, uh, Blowout, the Antonioni movie. Which but, I've never seen. Right. So we, we can talk about that, but it's like. That was, you know, an Italian art film from the 60s. One of my favorites. I really, really, really like it. But this opening is in no way like an Italian art film. This is a B-movie slasher film where we're looking at naked chicks in, like, a sorority house or something like that. So immediately, like, we're first and foremost experiencing this as an And we're presented movie. kind of as a creep, yeah. right? Like, we're presented as him outside, yeah. and we're seen by the by two girls, like, through the window, and yeah. they shriek at us. So yeah. we, we're, as the voyeur, we feel like we are kind of a, t- a terrible actor. Yeah. And that by continuing to witness this, we are, we are part and parcel part of the cause. Yeah, especially because we don't know what's going on. Yes. Uh, it's like... Like, why am I looking at this? I probably shouldn't be looking at this. And it, as it happening? continues and John Lithgow becomes our stand-in for this B-movie slasher character, it just continues to develop and, and uh, build into this sense of, should I have turned it off so I'm not complicit or not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. I mean, you you saw a lot of Hitchcock in it. 
I, I did, but that's because I hadn't ever seen Blow Up. Yeah. So I particularly saw moments of rope. I, I saw lots of moments of vertigo. Uh, rear window, especially, right? Like, it opens up with rear window. Yeah. As he's looking through the window, and they're looking back through the rear window. You know, it's yeah. it's lots and lots of mo- Hitchcockian moments. But I think other than the opening my, and the chase scenes and all that's great, there's so many great moments when he's standing recording. I still think my favorite's that camera swirl that De Palma does. Oh, yeah. And the tapes are being erased or whatever. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a great moment. That's, I think that's one of the greatest cinematic moments in the 80s. Flat, period. Done. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. Pretty striking, quiet. It's just, we just hear the beeping of some machine. Um, there's no music. It's just Travolta coming in and out of the frame as the camera turns. And just this continual uh, swirl of terror, but also yeah. ecstasy and, and confusion and... Yeah, his his camera made me feel a lot of things. It it uh it reminds or that this film reminded me of the strength of tone of Damien Chazelle's framework, hmm. where, where every frame has this strong sensibility of of confidence and of a purpose and evoking something um of a of of film past, but. Re- kind of re-threading it into a new tapestry. Yeah. I, I don't feel like Damien Chazelle is doing anything new. I feel like uh, Steve McQueen is maybe doing something new as a director. Um, every time I, I see his work, I, I'm always questioning, like, is this the first time I've seen this? But with yeah. Damien Chazelle, I, I feel like he's just reinterpreting and, and re kind of reapplying to the tapestry of film old techniques with, with new flourishes. And I think yeah. that blowout kind of uh made that acute for me yeah yeah and i think if there is some sort of distinct authorship from de palma to me it is that lurid sensibility right i don't think of hitchcock as ever well i mean i mean i guess hitchcock could be um but like i said earlier in a different way lurid but um his camera lies yeah so even if his camera is seeming lurid is it really yeah it's narratively very similar to blow up which is about not a sound designer but a photographer who you know thinks he witnesses a murder and you know kind of similar to travolta's course of action he's putting together photographs that he thinks illustrate a murder having taken place but um john travolta's character is putting that together not just through image but with sound mm-hmm. um so that it is flip book he makes is just great yeah yeah is that a moment in blow up no, in Blob, it's a little different where he takes these photographs in a park um, where, yes, there where there's these, a shooter behind bushes. Exactly, and there are these really memorable shots of uh, the wind blowing through the trees. Mm-hmm. You know what you get in Blow Up, a similar kind of touch. But he takes these photographs of a, of a couple that he sees making out, which we get here. Mm-hmm. But he has to keep um, enlarging the photos to try to like get at what he sees in a bush. Yeah, um, which ends up being... A- I think a, a rifle tip or a pistol tip or something. Exactly right. Space. Yeah. Um, and I won't say any more than that because I want you to watch it and yeah. we'll revisit it. But it is very much about images, right? Mm-hmm. And that it's like similar to that flip book effect. But, you know, what Travolta does obviously is as much about sound as he's syncing up the images with the sound. Yes. Um, so it's just you know just sort of the 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 logical extension of what blow up did not just a uh 
just a reimagining of it. It's it's kind of taking it the next step. So, um, for, for me, this also kind of incorporates the paranoia of the Kennedy assassination, though. Hmm. Um, and there is a film that I and a book that I don't recall the name of from Stephen King, um, hmm. where it is about the assassination of uh, a political figure, um, and and uh, someone. The, the main character, shoot, he's he's a pretty big actor, becomes kind of telekinetic or um, telepathic, and he, he sees into the future, and he knows that this is a, a bad character, so he knows that it's the right thing to do to kill this character. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it kind of plays into the same genre that's being toyed around with at the time, which I think is born out of these um, sympathetic and, and empathetic feelings for political assassination of mm. beloved figures and also the um um you know less than illustrious background surrounding the moments of their death mm. um you know kennedy kind of died as admirably as a political candidate can you yeah. could just as easily have seen him shot dead in, in another woman's bed though. yeah um and, and this is kind of playing off of i think that other sensibility of what if your favorite political candidate died in the arms of the wrong woman? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is a very different sort of um, thematic concern from Blow Up, which is very just a much about, like, aesthetics, I think, and, certain, and like, the, you know, role that images play in, like, sim- cinematic storytelling. This, I think, is employing the same kind of narrative conventions, but for a completely different purpose. And that's sort of what makes it feel like its own original thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, I think I referenced uh, the conversation in in my notes, which was a Francis Ford Coppola movie, which you have seen or have not. Which film? The Conversation. So with yes, Gene Hackman. Yes, I've seen The Conversation, but it's been, once again, years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's about... Gene Hackman playing. Um, I think it's yeah, been a while since I've like seen it. Quarter. Yeah, he's. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think he works for the government. If I'm remember, yeah. remembering correctly, I think you're right. I might need a correction on the show notes if I'm wrong about that. But you know, he's listening to people, not watching. Yes. Them, he's listening yes. to them. Um, but it very much fits in sort of that paranoid conspiracy thriller genre of the '70s, um, and which I I, uh, I guess might be born out of. Uh, the dissolution of politics from Nixon. Yeah? yeah oh, yeah, absolutely. Pro- probably yeah, in yeah. conjunction with the Vietnam War as well. But, yeah. um, you know, all those things, JFK's assassination, um, Nixon's disillusionment to the American people, and then the Vietnam War disillusionment to the American people yeah. kind of builds into this, I, I think, this film entirely. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Especially with the startling um, visual effects of the ending yeah and um you know not not to put the the cart before the horse but um the crazy rich asians um fireworks Mm. ending has Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing on blowouts ending with the fireworks this is i think my favorite fireworks ending of all time can't argue with that but i do Mm. do think maybe the crazy rich asians ending was influenced by this i'd like to think Mm. recency bias yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
there's the line in Blowout when John Travolta is talking to, I think, his buddy. I can't remember if it's a cop buddy or a buddy at the newspaper who says, Travolta tells him, you know, like, there's a conspiracy behind this. Like, you got to listen to this tape. And he says, no one cares about conspiracies anymore. Yes. Um, which yes, is, yes, like, yes, yes, yes. this nice continuation of sort of the conversation um, ideas, but... Like to me, that's that's a completely different thematic point. That mm-hmm. like the De Palma's maybe urging people to not be complacent. He's like, look at this character, paying attention, watching, well, this, listening, this making conclusions. The of the Reagan era. Yeah. So, yeah, we we were very much no longer um, gravitating towards conspiracy theories, and I, I believe, kind of after this, uh, once. Bill Clinton was elected after Bush Sr. Uh, it was more Republican-leaning voters that became, you know, the the folks obsessed with conspiracy theories that served their own internal narratives. Yeah. So th- this was certainly something that was needed and wasn't heated, where, where yeah. you know, more of a centrist approach of anybody, all people, be a little bit more scrutinizing instead of whoever yeah. is in charge, you know, um, if your guy's in charge, that doesn't mean you stop being scrutinizing. I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot of, like, red, white, and blue, you know, color schemes, which I kind of like that sort of fit into this sort of, you know, specific concern with the U.S. Um, There's one when they're at the hotel, and that was one of my favorite shots. Travolta takes the girl, I can't remember that girl's name, to the hotel after she gets out from the hospital, you know, and oh, there's the, this nice... the girl with the shiny hair? I guess she yeah, had and he, he had yeah. a tie. Yeah, 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 and they smoked cigarettes. Oh, they do. And they she had do. more than one gentleman caller. Definitely. So it's See a pattern. Uh, yeah, it's when they're in the hotel and they have this nice kind of crisscross red, white, and blue wallpaper on the walls. We have the oh, pinnacle okay. of the narrative, you know, at the Liberty Day celebration. Yes. Yeah, um, and there's kind of a. I, I mean, I can't see it, but I, I oh, was yeah, given yeah. to the effect that that flag behind them oh, was yeah. of a startling um, <laughs> color contrast. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's not too heavy-handed, but it's clear. That's that's what's hard but sometimes about symbolism through images is, like, how do you make it... Um, how do you make it register and not heavy-handed? Mm-hmm. You know, it's... And that, contextual to the... Yeah. Uh, ongoing movement of the story yeah yeah that's something that there's no logic behind it's just a matter of of touch you know knowing how often to do it um whether to put it in the background the foreground whether or not to have a character comment on it Mm -hmm. um but it really just kind of like fills out the the texture of the movie it's great it's fantastic and um john lithgow was Mm. incredible I loved his performance. He Ugh. was so fucking skeezy. That's interesting. He was maybe the one thing that held me back from a higher score. I think I gave it a four. Really liked this movie. Um, he was maybe one who I like didn't like as much about, or I didn't like as much as other things in do, the movie. Do you but... think that that's because he did his job well or um, poorly? Uh, I can just tell you that like I, I, it took me out of it a little bit. It felt just Him as an a actor? Pinch. Like, do, when you see John Lithgow, does he remove you from pictures in general? 
Mm, it's hard to say because I haven't seen him in that much recently. It's something about that performance that maybe just felt a teeny bit cartoonish to me. I know that's a hard word to hear because no, I know you like it. I agree but, it's cartoonish. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of Christopher Lloyd in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Still haven't seen it. But, but yeah, I don't think I've said that, I, but I have not seen that movie. I, I like car- cartoonish uh, villains, you yeah. know, because a lot of uh, people that behave villainously are kind of cartoonish in their reasoning. Yeah. Um, but, like, the moment where he's leaning over the bathroom stall with the wire, that oh, yeah. didn't get you. Really like the setup. I like the framing. Um, different actor. I might have just responded to it better. So did did you, um, once again, to bring up the word realism, did you want more realism? Did, did um, you want kind of a more formidable foe? Not necessarily realistic, but I can't say that I was as intimidated or afraid of him as I might have wanted to be. Um, that could be taste. You know, we all have different faces, different um, places, mannerisms that just, say. yeah. <laughs> that threw me off. <laughs> we all have, you know, just different physiques that sort of um, strikes differently. Um, to me, and he's, it, and he's this, kind of the unassuming, um, un, unintimidating person that can go through a crowd without being noticed. Mm, and that's yeah. why he was perfect making that telephone call in the phone booth to me. Mm, once we yeah. once we got there, I was like, "All right, I know who you are. You're the you're the actual lunatic imbecile who yeah. takes lives because he's insane, not because he's being paid well." Yeah. And I'm along for this ride. And I absolutely Great. understand why someone wouldn't be. I understand John Lithgow kind of being cartoonish. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I've always gravitated towards him as a performer. Yeah. And it worked for me in exactly the opposite way that it worked for you. Yeah. And I, I yeah. think that, you know, the the listener, if they watch it, can feel either way and be right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This and is it's, one of those things where there isn't a right way to feel about I, I think John Lithgow yeah. is one of those performers. There's not a right way to feel about him. Which is good. Like, I, I, I like having actors that are just really specific in their demeanor. That just means that they're going to work, you know, for you, for any given person in some things and yeah. not others. I, I will say, just to kind of um, fi- figure this out more, Gary Oldman disappears mm. into his roles. Yeah. John Lithgow's always John Lithgow in his roles. Oh, yeah. Is that the right way to put that? It's perfect. Okay. Yeah. So that's, um, it, yeah, if you don't want to see John Lithgow and you want to see a villain, you're not yeah. going to see a villain. You're going to see John Lithgow. Yeah. If you wanted the villain, you know, go watch Dracula. Yeah. Boy, I'm trying to remember the movie with Jack Black and Tom Hanks' son, who I think is Colin Colin Hanks, Hanks yes. I think it was called... Was it called Orange County? Yeah. I don't think it was called... Was it called Orange County? Uh, it sounds right to me. Jack... Or Colin Hanks is trying to get into, like, Princeton. Yeah. And Jack Black is his brother. Do you remember I, that movie? I, I'm... I think I agree with you, but it, it might not be called Orange County. It might be called, like something else county it might be called something else but john lithgow, it's definitely a county john lithgow plays their dad oh love him in that role okay so you Maybe like him in more of a comedic role i do i i'm kind of just associated with him there so yeah. you know that could be part, part of it for sure um but I, I so the reason why i brought this up is because like i think the reason why i strongly dislike even hate the killing of a sacred deer 
mm. is because of his success in making me feel and see what he wanted me to. Yeah. And I just wanted to make sure that your resistance to him wasn't because you were finding him too villainous and too good of and doing mm. too good of a job. I don't, that doesn't feel quite right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you know that doesn't mean that I don't like you know the the staging of the scenes, right? Yeah. You know, no, like they were would staged. you know had you just replaced him with somebody else, like you know that might have just registered with me more. But you know he's got the wire kind of you know wheeled up around his hands. He's just waiting for the right moment to to yank her up from mm-hmm. the stall. It's pretty good stuff. It, it is, mm-hmm. and the the moments that John and her share are are very good. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way that he has her plea and fight even though she ends up dying i i thought was really um unprecedented i guess in mm. film noir um mm. i i don't think i've ever seen a femme fatale kind of brutally murdered while fighting to her last breath in that way yeah and, and I, I so i do think he brought something new to the genre while paying homage to the genre and i think that he deconstructed hitchcockian um masterpieces fairly yep. well um particularly rope mm-hmm. particularly vertigo yeah um with you know homages to rear window even to b- the birds in some small moments um yeah what am, I, I thought of psycho in one moment when absolutely uh god i wish i could remember characters names better but the girl john travolta john travolta's working with love interest yeah goes to see the the guy who was also there the night of the incident mm-hmm. at the hotel and that's when she bashes him over the head with a like, bottle or something like that and then we suddenly get that kind of like god's eye point yep. of view which to me makes me think of psycho when um you know the the character comes out with the knife above the stairs and we suddenly get that high point of shot uh, but, but a I high mean, point of view shot it opens yeah. with psycho when she's naked in the shower right absolutely and yeah. and then the whole rest of the film we're searching for the right scream yeah and the only reason we get the right scream is because he wired her so that she yeah. didn't die <laughs> yeah yeah um and to me that's cynicism or sort of pessimism right up to the end that is kind of fitting mood wise with yes. noir as we've been talking and, about. and it i i think that his complete control over this film helped me um understand why he wanted to adapt Oliver Stone's screenplay of Scarface Mm. and and it evoked in me an understanding of the similarities between Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma's sensibilities they're both uh, disillusioned with the American uh, government system and with representations of patriotism and they have something to say about American normative behavior yeah, uh, and and I thought that that was really cool because I definitely love I lean more towards Oliver Stone as an auteur than I I do De Palma, but yeah. this was the first moment where I understood why De Palma is touted and respected in in as many camps as he is, as yeah. kind of being the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson before Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, personally, I think PTA is you know in a league of his own at this point. Yeah, him and yeah. Nolan kind of carved themselves out a league of their own. That yeah. only um, Kubrick and, and Hitchcock can reach. Yeah. Yeah, when we get to another film that we'll talk about, I think we can compare a little bit to Blowout in terms of, like, how to sort of, like, embed themes in a narrative without it feeling too obvious, which I think Interesting. Blow Up... Interesting. Is this going to be searching? 
It is going to be searching. I, I was searching for the right answer, and I, I, I searched it. <laughs> you found some results. <laughs> uh, very different movies, but I think there is something really kind of remarkable about how, like, noticeable the themes are in Blow Up, and yet how it just stitched into the narrative they are, you know? I think you mean Blow Up. Blow Out. Sorry. Correct. Um, you want to take a small di- divergent to Papillon? Let's do it. Keep you alive. I'll underwrite any escape you care to arrange. Something tells me you can be quite savage. You are the property of the penal administration of French Guiana. There's no way off. There's always a way. So we are resuming with some talk of Papillon, um, as much as there is to be found. I watched the original Papillon film before watching this Papillon, and I personally was not anywhere near enamored. I understood why people respected the original, um, but I'm kind of disillusioned with Dustin Hoffman as Mm. a performer. I liked what I saw from Steve McQueen. I haven't seen really anything from him before. And in this new one with Charlie Hunnam in Steve McQueen's role and Rami Malek in Dustin Hoffman's role, I fell in love. I loved Mm. the film. I loved the brotherhood built between it i thought that um some of the scenes that they excluded um it it suffered as a film for excluding them and i'd be interested to see if they shot that and the editor didn't let it get through or if it was excluded because of its two hour and eight minute runtime things that were included in the original they just cut out Or, or if they did shoot it because i believe that i saw some promotion material that did have the butterflies being oh, right. caught by the two characters um that, that aren't present and then the derivation with um not having them try to uh, catch an alligator you know i wonder if that was just uh due to budgetary constraints of insurance purposes or if that was a a conscious choice or those types of things but i i really like this film you really did not like this film we had a two point split on this i give it a four you give it a two yeah um why don't you tell the listeners why it's so unremarkable yeah this one didn't do a whole lot for me um didn't hate it just just didn't like it a whole lot um I, I wasn't crazy about the performances. Charlie Hunnam was okay. Rami Malek, I just couldn't help. Um, am I saying that correctly? It's Rami Malek, correct? Uh, I, I say Malek. Malek, okay. Like Terrence, but it could be Malek as well. One of the two. I, just, I've never heard him say his own last name. Why not? I just want, thought I'd be sure. Um, I had trouble seeing him as a person rather than just an actor kind of going through the motions. Um, I just, I could never quite connect with him. Um, I had trouble really feeling much for their relationship. Um, there were very few images that really struck me, um, as ones that I kind of want to store in my memory. Um, I just didn't get that much out of watching these guys suffer. Um, the editing up until they actually get into the camp was too quick for me. It was too too quick for a lot of the images to kind of register. Um, oh, man. They give you an extra 20 minutes before they get into the camp in this film oh, than really? they do in the other film. Yeah. Yeah, that whole romantic entanglement. Oh, yeah. You yeah. don't... None of that. You don't get a single bit of it. Interesting. Just that, dive right that in there. That procession march to the ship. That's yeah. every moment of um, external emotions that you get. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So there are some notable differences. Yeah. Um, 
and I just didn't feel much um, as I as I watched these guys continue to suffer. Um, I will kick it over to you. Um, I I particularly like the prison breakout genre, mm. um, and I liked seeing what what they chose to have and and what not to have. But I am truly biased in a film like this towards enjoying it probably more than the meme because I number one like prison breakouts. Yeah. Number two love Charlie Hunnam. Number three enthusiastically love Rami Malek. Love. There you go. Mr. Robot is the best show on television in the last three years. Run it. These are facts, sir. Strong words. Um, Charlie Hunnam in Pacific Rim is an incredible performance. Charlie Hunnam in Crimson Peak, also incredible performance. Um, Kurt Sutter's Sons of Anarchy, he has a, a character arc that is kind of unprecedented, unless you point towards like Brian Cranston and Breaking Bad. Oh yeah. So to compare it, you have to point it top tier television um he's just one of those actors that i love watching the nuance of their performance and what they'll do with their Mm. bodies their faces their fingers um those choices that they'll make i'm familiar with rami's tics so Mm. when i'm seeing his choices i know what those are in conjunction to and that they're that they're new based on his body of work yeah and so I'm deriving a certain sense of pleasure that is entirely extra textual to the film. And that certainly colored my positiveness. Yep. I certainly considered giving it a three and a half. I went with a four, but I completely understand a three, um, even a two and a half. But I, <laughs> I, I would, if you feel like you can offer some sort of extra um, detail, I'd like to understand why you gave it a two. Mm-hmm. Which means that it's below a average. You're saying it's less than an average film. And I'm just wondering why. Yeah, how I felt about it, I think, was certainly less than average. Um, sort of in my enthusiasm, in my eagerness to revisit it, in my um, interest in it thematically. So, I mean, I guess I usually kind of think about movies in three ways. One, how emotionally involved I am on one... In one way, how emotionally involved I am... Two, how thematically rich is it? Three, how formally exciting is it? Personally, I don't think the cinematographer had an eye that I um, really had a taste for. A lot of these images just just fell flat for me. Um, I don't think I really quite had a sense for how they wanted to put things within the frame. So formally, I think it didn't quite work for me, especially with regard to the, the editing as well. Had the images maybe been things that were more pleasant on the eye for me. I don't think I had enough time, especially towards the beginning, to really uh, give them time to to register. And yeah, the well, ma- yeah. Let me make a phone call. Um, mm. I'm just gonna tell the makers of Papillon to make the uh, look of the prison mm. more beautiful, so that you could enjoy it. Oh. <laughs> well, like like contextually putting. So are, are you saying the first 20 minutes where we aren't in prison went by too fast? No, no, no. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that, like, it's hard to make suffering look beautiful or something like that. No, I'm um, saying that I think that they purposely made suffering not look beautiful because of mm. the tone of the film, which is that suffering is deplorably terrible. I agree, but I, I, I think there is something about... Um, composition that 
allows for suffering to to resonate in some cases and not in others. And I know this will no, you're going to you're you're absolutely right. And my argument to this is that I feel like um, Charlie Hunnam's character development while he's in the prison that is so torturous and murderous to look at yeah brings me that beauty and not you oh that's that's possible i mean i don't i mean there's no way that i question like that you found beauty in it like it no, struck no, me no what's interesting because you're um wording these details and yeah so, so um vividly you're yeah. you're able to help me elucidate um mm. where i'm the similarities we have that i can't put words to yeah. Because what you're describing is what I'm experiencing, but I'm finding that in the character, whereas what you're looking mm. for that is in the um, the physical structure of the frame, yeah. which is very interesting because it yeah. just kind of, uh, you, you know, they can hear uh, where our differences are and we can develop our, our differences and our understanding better. Yeah, yeah. You're going to say this is unfair because it's a great director, but if I bring up Steve McQueen, will you allow it briefly? Uh, the director. The director, not the actor. That's coincidental. The the actor of the same film. Originally. Pure coincidence. Not yeah. talking about the actor. I, absolutely. Um, yeah, he's, but yeah, he's an incredible director. Yeah. Um, when I think about 12 Years of Slave, there is one image that I think about every time when I think about that movie, and it's of um, the main actor whose name I'm not going to Thank you. It is when he has been strung up, and mm. he's over on the left side of the frame, and um, people are milling about behind them, continuing to go about their their business as if um, they don't even um, recognize that he's mm-hmm. there. Um, and you you already know my criticism because we had this conversation earlier. That this of that is one. Uh, that that I would say that Steve McQueen yeah. is one of the greatest working mm. younger auteurs in the industry. And that Papillon could be, like I said earlier, a button, mm. a, a badge, a, a pin, mm. and someone's ascension to developing their auteurship. Um, you know, that's mm. that's kind of the only criticism that I have towards that yeah. point. I absolutely agree that if Quentin Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, Steve McQueen, he, you yeah. name a famous award-winning director, Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, yeah. had directed this, it would have a... A more peculiar and more avid eye to it. Yeah. But I do think that um, considering the likely studio oversight, um, yep. the budgetary constraints, yeah, th- that I got um, more than I'd expected, especially after mm. watching the original. And I am, I, I would love to know, and I don't ever want to put you through this because it would be like going to prison. <laughs> but I, I would love to know what it's like for you to watch the original yeah. and then watch this new one yeah. back to back and how how that would color. Maybe it wouldn't change your score, but maybe you would you would agree that the new one is so much better than the old one. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe we could find some common ground there. Because yeah, I'm yeah. struggling to find any common ground with you on this film. It's which true. is kind of interesting. Like e- e- Even in other films like Out of the Past, we find common ground where we agree about yeah. why... We're, we're differing yeah um or in in the case of hail caesar i could at least make the case for understanding you but i i, yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. quite understand um why it's not even like 
are are you giving it a two out of feeling or are you giving it a two out of critical consensus like are, are you saying it's not even a serviceable mm. film because to me a two mm. is more of a it's not even a serviceable film no no, no. We, I don't, we I don't both gave that, happy like time murders a two yeah i think it's not even a serviceable film okay yeah then i think we're deviating there like okay um it's you know I mean this is this this is where ratings get weird like it is in an it is an assessment of, of how I feel not just whether or not they they made something coherent mm-hmm. um, and in both both cases I felt something uh, that left me less than enthusiastic less enthusiastic about what I just experienced than other films have um, two and then a half like is to. sort of like decidedly mixed yes like I feel extremely neutral two and a halves are like kind of fascinating in a way because there can be a combination of things that like you really respond to and things you don't really respond to and somehow you end up being like i am just straight down the middle on this yep. that was kind of the meg for me mm-hmm. for next week yes um, well you unfortunately didn't get to see it in all its glory i didn't see it in 3d true or even imax you saw it in 3d imax right i just saw it in three uh 3d dolby Okay, yeah, still probably preferable. Yeah, I mean, a, a two out of five or slightly under, you know, half of the stars in total I could give it. It is just one that I was less enthusiastic about. I, um, I, I wasn't really responding to um, the extent of the suffering that I saw, um, the imagery felt kind of muddled to me sometimes. The, the suffering um, was accelerated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, the, the imagery was m- certainly momentary. Um, you know, it, it's a true story. They tried to fit two books into one in this one, whereas in the original they tried to fit just the one book. I understand where you're coming from. I'm, I just wondered more at the technical differences between our um, sensibilities, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it, once again, just like Hail Caesar, comes down to uh, the, the performers. Yeah. Where where I'm getting something that you're simply um, either not receptive to or, or that you're not getting. Yeah, and ratings-wise, it sounds like when something is below, like a like a two or below, you're saying that, like, there is, like, there is something technically that is li- literally prohibiting you from, like, understanding something that's going on or or feeling what's going on or it's irredeemable mm. it's choices are irredeemable kind of like the spy yeah. who dumped me i would say is an irredeemable film ah yeah i didn't see that one R- regardless of uh kate mckinnon's um contributing performance and her comedic chops which are quite notable um the the screenplay's choices yeah were irredeemable in any sense yeah yeah um and, and kind of when you get in that two and below territory, I'm wondering, because, like, The Happy Time Murders, for me, is irredeemable in its current conceit as a screenplay. Mm. So that's just where I'm coming at it from. Whereas, yeah. you know, if I were to give something a two, you might wonder, uh, what about the form that I not yeah, I'm. I certainly lean more towards story, and then anytime I I tend to love something that's accentuated by my love of the performers, and that's yeah. certainly the case here. It's just I'm, hundred percent there for Rami and Charlie, and I probably always will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean the extra, the extra textual things do matter. Yes. I mean, 
There's no doubt Once we that. get you to watch Mr. Robot, maybe you'll uh, revisit this and give it the four it deserves. This could end up being my wounded soldier of the year. If I come <laughs> back and say, this is the film I want not left behind. Who knows? Maybe Tune I just, in maybe here, I just need this to watch. This could be the wounded soldier. Maybe I just need to watch Mr. Robot. <laughs> I th- well, everyone needs to watch Mr. Robot, but I'll, I'll be interested to see if that uh, truly shifts your perspective on yeah. his performance. Yeah. I don't think that would shift your perspective on the film. I think that your criticisms are pretty valid about the form choices, and I think that you lean more towards form. Yeah. But I do think that um, seeing more of his performances will unlock that for you, because I, yeah. I believe you've only really seen him in Short Term 12. Rami, uh, that is correct. Which is um, an, an incredibly limited performance. Yeah, I'm trying to think about what else I just recently saw Charlie Hunnam in. Um, oh, Lost City of Zen. Z. Yeah. yeah. Z, um, whatever. So, yeah. Which it, I liked him quite a bit. He's cool. I, I think that um, with James Gray, with Yermo del Toro, with Kurt Sutter, they, they build these um, these dark, brooding, um, hyper-surreal worlds that mm. allow Charlie to be able to inhabit his character space. And I don't yeah. think that, um, that Papillon did that as much. Mm. But because I'm aware of the way that he performs, I see past it kind of like I saw with King Arthur um, yeah. from Guy Ritchie. I, I was a lot more receptive to that film than most people. Um, but I, I think that with Bohemian Rhapsody, and if you get the chance to watch um, at least season one of Mr. Robot, it'll yeah. unlock a new appreciation for Rami, and yeah. by default, Christian Slater. It's very possible. I am extremely excited for Bohemian Rhapsody. So, fingers crossed. So let's move to Searching. All right. We just saw this last night, so less than 24 hours to digest this one. Yeah, uh, just a normal digital 2D format, um, AMC, Lowe's, and Woodenville. Um, I was kind of eager, to put it lightly, to see this digital in-frame format, which yeah. um, I believe started with Unfriended, which you and Peter Labuza's podcast turned me on to because of Keith Ulick's hmm. ringing endorsement for it. Yeah. as one of his favorite films at the end of the year in 2014 or 2013, I think. Um, and then I, I uh, was skeptically excited for uh, Unfriended Dark Web, which I was mm. much more receptive to than most, because I had Ending B, as it's being called. Yeah. Um, did you see that? I never caught up with you it, which is disappointing, okay. because I really liked Unfriended, so be eager yeah, to see it. I mean, you turned it. me on yeah. to it, so... Um, this kind of wrapped up my trilogy of uh, in-screen um, web format. Yeah. If you, yeah. I, I think that your review had a very particular name for it that some film oh. critic uses. Yeah, I think it was Nick Pinkerton at Film Comment who just called it desktop mise-en-scene. I mean, I think if you're talking about the five formal components of film, you're talking about editing. You're talking about cinematography, you're talking about sound, you're talking about mise-en-scene, and you're talking about narrative. Where were we? We were talking about uh, searching and just the, how one the person... The correct term as coined by Nick Pinkerton, which is, he, once again... He called it desktop mise-en-scene, okay. which I don't know is even entirely accurate for this film, because we're not just seeing a desktop. We see things like a Google um, Maps page on a phone. Mm-hmm. It's not really a desktop. Um, but we're seeing digital formats. Yeah, you know, like um, you said, I actually think like how you described it is probably more accurate. Digital in f- in frame form 
is just what I call mm. it because it's it's all in frame. It's all yep. kind of this this digital medium, and it's yep. contributing to the thing that you love, form. Yeah. So let's dig into the um, digital in frame form of yeah. searching. I was not as crazy about it here as I was in Unfriended. Um, no, I, I think that what Unfriended does that this doesn't do is have an element of pacing that is brought on by the thrilling horror of the subject matter in Unfriended, where mm-hmm. we don't know who's going to die, when, if they're going to die, how, who, th- these types of things, like who's going to kill the man, who's going to be the victim. Yeah. Uh, whereas in this, you never are concerned about John Cho. You're yeah. briefly concerned about his brother. Yeah. Uh, you kind of already know the format or at least yeah. i did D- did you kind of know before you knew what what was happening uh and whether or not like she was alive and that kind of thing um, um yeah so yesterday i asked you to to place a gamble you oh, were yeah. you were partially wrong you thought he'd find his daughter but she'd be dead yeah he did find his daughter at the end but she was alive it was a mm. it, it was a nice touch. I left kind of feeling happy for them. You know, yep. they were a cute family, and so far as I believed that it was real. Yeah. But um, at any point, did you already know who was culpable? Not until like that long before we actually find out. I mm. wouldn't say that like it was like too obvious for me. Like it was mystery wise. I think it was. Um, to use that very critical word. It was fine. Love it. That's uh, understandable. Yeah. Work, works in all it, different demographics. I, I think I could have picked on it. I, yeah, I, I didn't really see it coming until maybe 10 minutes before or something like wow. that. Um, I wish I could have been you. Yeah, but, but like I still wasn't having a good time. Yeah, no, I go to the movies to have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> we were both lounging. We never led, uh, leaned forward. Uh, yeah. I just liked to straighten my back. That was the only times I'd rustle around. Yeah. Um, so there's a point in time where she is assigned his case, uh, and she tells him over the telephone, and he uh, opens up three web pages after a Google search, and mm. all three of those web pages that are the top results are her uh, being glorified. Yeah. And anytime someone's depicted only as glorification, I always know that they're kind of the villain, and that's when I was like, all right, she did it, and that's yeah. about thirty twenty five minutes in the movie. And from yeah. then on, I was just like, can we fucking hurry up? Yeah. I was very close to a two and a half on this one. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I still think I might lower it, actually. Um, I, I, did, I think that maybe talking about this might elucidate a better understanding of what I do and do not like about this particular picture. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It did seem conspicuous that we were getting such an obvious look at her accolades. But I wasn't quite sure, like, what the motive was until I started to realize... It's not until we see on her Facebook page a quote about a mother's love for her son or her child. I was like, oh, okay, her son probably did something. And mother's she... love. I wonder if that's going to come back. Oh, it just might. Just don't tell mama. We have nice connections this week. But it took me a little while to sort of deduce what might be going on. But I don't think that the form really enhanced my I excitement for the story. I think that you could have shot this film without this form constraint. It would have been better. And it would have been me. a better movie. Yeah. Because the performers, uh, Deborah Messing and John Cho, yeah. are so strong that with the proper lighting and camera work and nuance and staging, it would have been so good. Yeah, and and maybe that presentation wouldn't have telegraphed that Deborah Messing was culpable. 
or that her son was culpable and she was culpable by default. Yeah. Um, I, I was just really disappointed and I kind of felt bad for making you drive all that way to the new theater <laughs> <laughs> for such you a know, letdown of a film. It is extremely rare that I regret watching a movie, right? Yes. Even when you watch something I, that I you don't like. I certainly don't regret like, watching this. Yeah. I just regret um, that I did not get to have the experience that the other folks that have logged this film have had. Yeah. I don't think that I have anyone that I'm following that didn't log this at a four or four and a half or a five. Wow. Which means that I'm the lowest by a full star, and I might yeah. lower it. Yeah. So, um, I, I think that we're kind of in our own camp here, and I wonder, why do you think that we're having a different experience? Um, I think the, the, the formal use of this sort of, you know, digital format in Unfriended was just more critical to the narrative. Um, I don't know that, that I'll, I'll say anything different from what you've already said, but I, I just agree that I think this could have been a more involving crime story had it been told in the traditional format. And I think the director might have confused um, the need to use the form to, to illustrate certain thematic concerns. Um, I don't think you need to necessarily leverage this format to make a point about the role of social social media in our lives. Um, no, I think this was a terrible illustration of the use of social media in our lives in conjunction to either of the unfriended films. Yeah. The, the one thing that I wanted to ask you was if the first 15 minutes or so, it's probably shorter than that, but it felt like 15 minutes to me, yeah. um, gave you... Uh, pleasure or or if you enjoyed it or if it contributed to your experience in any way those moments of just watching the desktop be navigated by the, uh, by the three parties of the family did that give you anything not really i was very like interested in it because of mm. its use of point of view but i don't but i don't think it was uh effective i uh, it's, i was uh i agree it was not effective yeah but I was in the camp of it was stupid. <laughs> like it was, it was a waste of time. Yeah, I, I, I would rather have a split screenshot mm. um, that shows like the webcam showing her face or his face as they navigate their desktop in in the same shot, and and then in the other half have been at the desktop being navigated, so that I'm seeing the cutaway, um, which we yeah. talked about earlier, right? You you liked seeing the the interplay of, of two actors off of each other and out yeah, of the past. Yeah, that is something you lose here. And, yeah. and that's something that I would have enjoyed maybe watching how they feel as they're navigating through this. And yeah. there's moments where they get to it, but they um, they go for realism, which is also known as graininess. Yeah. Whereas in Unfriended, we always see their faces, basically. Yeah. Or we hear them and how yeah. they're feeling um, in very high quality. And I yeah. think that this um, pursuit for realism and graininess and uh, lack lack of audible noises and emotions contributed to the the difference that I I find between Unfriended and this uh, yeah. film. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, yeah, it, it's the use of 
point of view that I feel like is a little inconsistent here. And maybe that was just something yes, that, the, that the director conceded was okay. But, you know, we get things that are from John Cho's perspective and then things that are more from an omniscient perspective that are mm-hmm. just like the desktop and the cursor doing things, but that we we are not sort of instructed to um, conceptualize as John Cho he, doing them. Or, or we have no uh, emotional grounding in why these actions are being taken. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas in the Unfriended films, we 100% understand the uh, emotional weight and the reasoning behind these actions. Yeah, for like really simple reasons. And, and we're it's a it's a video chat, and, and therefore you're kind of on the ride. Like Unfriended becomes a roller coaster, where yeah. it, it, this became like a drive-in movie where we just uh, you you know we were along for the ride, but we were leaning back in our seats. Uh, sipping drinks and and just uh, kind of taking it in and not really caring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, uh, there are still just like different directions that this format could be taken in that I think will be more striking. Like, I think about how it's kind of ironic that like most of us now sit at desktops all day long and stare at this kind of format, uh-huh. and then we see it in a movie and we say, "How refreshing! How how different is this?" Or and it's like, well. We do see this all day long. Um, that's kind of funny to me. And then the idea about you know cinematic is or cinema as being something voyeuristic. Like, what's more voyeuristic these days than seeing what somebody does on their computer, mm-hmm. right? Like that seems to be like an increasingly intimate and private space, which I I don't think this really so penetrates. Y- yesterday you were saying that you don't think it's been that a truly great film has been made in this form yet. Yeah. And yeah. I've kind of spent a lot of time thinking about that statement mm. because I, I find it very uh, cerebral. It's a, it's a very mm. interesting uh, <laughs> comment to make that I, I've kind of started to find a way of, of wrapping my head around um, what could be great in this format. Yeah. Because that's what I opposed to you when you said that. Like, well, what the fuck can be great then if Unfriended the original isn't great? It created yeah. the genre. I was kind of stumped, um, but... And uh, I, I began to think about Steven Soderbergh's experimentations, and I, I kind of started pairing his uh, work together. And I thought, like, what if something like Unsane was to be mixed with The Informant? Ooh, I haven't seen The Informant. Say more. So, so the, the Informant is basically someone informing. Mm-hmm. Or are they? Mm-hmm. And it's played by Matt Damon. And, and so it's this idea of imagine this desktop view of someone like. Um, running the screen share program you know to mm. compile all of what someone's doing so w- what if you were kind of looking at a desktop that was mirroring other people's desktops mm. pulling what they're doing and then um, maybe manipulating it or changing it beginning to drive them insane yeah uh, and, and I thought that maybe that Hitchcockian um, the conversation mixed you know, that yeah. Gene Hackman um, blowout, you know, if you're kind of informing and, and you're manipulating uh, what it is that you're informing on at the same time, I, I thought maybe that could be the angle into making a truly great work of the genre. Yeah, um, I think that sounds way more exciting. Yes. And that's kind of where I end up feeling like, even though I didn't like it, like, I'm just glad that this was made because, you know... It proves it's, it's going, profitable. Yeah, and it's going to take time to just sort of figure out, like, where 
this can work and where it doesn't. Yes. Um, and it just makes sense that the very first few, um, Unfriended being sort of a, uh, a unique Outlier. example, yeah. but that it's, you know, something that has to be kind of tested and experimented with before somebody really hits the nail yeah. on the head. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I had one final point before we move on to yeah. our uh, final sharp objects recap that we'll ever do um so all this being said take a step back forget about it as a debut film what do you think of searching i'm not terribly enthusiastic about it okay how about you i am my curiosity is piqued by a niche and i am curious Mm. to see what type of a project he aligns himself with next if mm-hmm. it's equally experimental, I will be very scrutinizing. But if it is in the formal tradition, I I would like to see what he does because I think there were very good interrupted performances from Deborah and John. And yeah. I would like to see if he can capture those if he chooses the correct form. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I it sits at the bottom of my debut films this year. But I, I, I do think that if this is the bottom of debut films this year... Yeah, this is a strong debut film year, and this is yeah. a pretty strong film on the bottom. If we're both at yeah. a three at the moment of recording, at least. Yeah, I guess I kept feeling like had this not had that format and it had been played in the it would have been way. But to me, it still felt kind of familiar, just in its beats. Yeah, um, no, it, it, it's certainly a, a genre. It's an overwrought genre. Yeah, the telegraph its um, navigation points. Yeah, and I yeah. think that everyone loving it might not watch that many movies you know it's not a criticism it's just you know if you don't watch stuff very often then sometimes the uh traditional narrative can be very enamoring you know i i think that's why some people thought that gravity was a perfect film oh yeah gravity is not a perfect film it's a beautiful film though yeah and I, I think I have it at a three and a half, and it's still one of my top films of the century. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely film, but it's not a perfect film. And yeah. I think that this might be one of those things where it could be a lovely film for people, but it is not the perfect film that they're purporting it to be. Yeah. It's really... Outside of Unfriended, I don't know of any other movies that have employed this format. Not consistently. I, yeah. Neither do I. Yeah. So... Lots yet to be seen. Lots yet to be seen. Um, well, I think that we're going to get to our final recap of Sharp Objects. This is episode seven and eight. What if after you die, part of you goes to heaven, part of you stays here? Just to see how things turn out. Let's dig in. Do you want to go off my notes? Or would, do you have an opening statement you'd like to make? Or Let's dive into the notes. Yeah. All right. So once again, I took uh, note of kind of the introduction because the intros have been shifting every single episode. Yeah. And it became very startling, especially in episodes seven and eight, their juxtaposition. Um, so just record, spinning fan, Amy's eyes moving. Then we cut to barbed wire fencing. Then we have the wires connected but also reflecting the barbed wire fencing, kind of elucidating the feeling of a prison. Mm. And then we have um, girls roller skating 
uh, eliciting this feeling of freedom and bliss. Mm. And kind of the, this time, the intro, I, I knew exactly what the tone was. It was mm. um, finding bliss and joy within the confinement and structure of a prison. Mm. Yeah. And specifically those spinning fan blade that's on um, a table that is at Amy's bedside in episode eight. Mm-hmm. It, and this intro is cut directly into the pig farm fan. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, and, and that um, begets the idea of movement and prison at the same time. Yeah. Sort and, of. And especially um, what, stasis and dynamism, dynamism at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And, and then it, it, in episode eight, it goes on to um, the feeding of the children yeah. um, from the bottle. Which is yeah. also how the pigs at the farm are fed, yeah. um, by and large, the the children at least. Um, so we open up, and you know what Amy's had a lot of in this show? Nightmares. She doesn't sleep super well. She does not. And mm. um, a lot of the notes that I that I took in this episode end up making me seem, or ended up making me feel very smart and uh, mm. observant <laughs> when I was watching episode eight. I was like, I was right. I was right. I was right. <laughs> Because um, the, these are just tangential things. So um, I'll just kind of go through point by point. So playing house is how Patty has control and how she demonstrates control and power to her daughters. Mm. It, it is the, um, you know, if you're going to make an argument that actions are um, teachable behaviors to children more than your yeah. words are as a parent, um, her teachable behaviors are kind of in, enforced home pageantry of what it's like to be a feminine um figure you know she's depicting herself um kind of demurely with it within these dresses and these outfits and the tone she takes is kind of uh bitter but it's a bittersweet tone she takes with the husband um yeah and just this uh lackadaisical control um and this goes on to have a pretty big part in episode eight oh yeah i'll say um you know, episode seven has its notes, but this is really just about building up to episode eight. <laughs> this is a foundation for the conclusion for her. Um, Emma gives power and control to Adora by doing drugs to get sick so Adora can t- care for her and process or grieve for her dead daughter. Mm. This was kind of a note to myself where I'm trying to figure stuff out. And um, this is one of those notes where I felt like a genius in episode eight. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I got it. Um, so, what do you think about Emma giving power and control to Adora? Do you agree that she's giving uh, it up, or? Yeah, I do agree. Um, this is something that made me think a little bit about Phantom Thread. Um, yes. Right. I wonder why. Wonder why? Yeah, I, I don't remember any mushroom tripping in the show. Mm, well, similar uh, use of um, self. Uh, it's all poisoning. Sickliness. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. Um, used in very different contexts, but um, something that came to mind nevertheless. No, um, absolutely. I, I didn't think of that, but I absolutely agree that one should think of that. Yeah. The figureheads of Wind Gap are attached to their power and willing to do anything to not sacrifice it. Um, this note mm-hmm. was taken when I was watching the sheriff kind of um, continually make the incorrect choices. Not because yeah. it made sense, but because it was where he was led by other yeah. figureheads within the town. Yeah. Um, and, and so, 
you know, this begets that historical generational violence that, that Gillian was talking about where, um, you know, money helps you suffer less. And so anything that brings about your prosperity, you're not going to look at as scrutinizingly as you're going to look at something that doesn't bring about your prosperity. And so yeah. he's particularly targeting um, weaker, um, younger, um, less wealthy individuals in these murders than he is... Um, wealthy older individuals yeah then there's a particular line that's said by the um brother of one of the girls killed um before he's in bed with camille mm-hmm. and that is uh they killed off the two girls with minds of their own yeah apparently they don't have a place in the wind gap when you have women like the freak girls yeah un- unless you know adora is your mother i think yeah precisely um and then i just wrote down that uh that episode felt like it was 10 cloverfield lane in its tone oh interesting that's cool i like you that. know it was, it was very mm. john goodman patty clark's in this yeah <laughs> i never thought of that i like that uh and then male worship of the feminine the feminine power structures of control um are over the male structures of control um, so, so mm. even though on on face within the town, it seems as if the the females kind of play second fiddle to all the men. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, behind closed doors, the feminine power structure is much higher and overarching yeah. than the male power structure. And this is yeah. seen any time the sheriff walks into Adora's home, and Adora's yeah. interactions with her own husband within the home. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's something that adora is good at though is making the men think they are the ones with the control absolutely uh, but but i i do think it's kind of a, a running theme um yeah you, you know it's i think i think also elucidated in hospitals where yeah. you know the doctors might be the male power structure but the true yeah. power is in the power of the nurses as we yeah. find out in episode eight um, yeah. because they keep track of things that um the records don't yeah these, these types of things um yeah. and, and i i think that you know this is where um, this series length is at its strength is in elucidating Mm. the feeling of these ideas yeah Um, I I think we both maybe came to feel that it didn't need as many episodes as it did or as much time as it does yeah yeah I saw that you noted that yeah I would agree Um, (laughs) and my next note is uh, potion making patty because she's just sitting there making potions uh, about uh, 10 minutes before this episode ends, and you don't really know why yet. Mm-hmm. She's just sitting there grinding stuff and pouring stuff into bottles, and, yeah. you know, it looks like she's a witch. Yeah, you had talked about that on, like, I think it was a couple podcasts back, about them being sort of like uh, these cliques being like covens of witches, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. This this feeds nicely into that same sure uh, image. And then, um, so... Uh, the image of Emma at near the end of this episode mm-hmm. made me write down a note that I hope that you uh, are familiar with, and if you're not, that's fine. Living Dead Girl. Mm. It's a song by Rob Zombie. Ooh, I don't know it. Oh, it's a good song. But they, they go on to um, name um, the Greek goddess who is a, the living dead girl in episode mm. 8. Gotcha. If you recall. Yeah. And we'll get there when we get there. But um, I just kind of wanted to point out that 
they are telegraphing these ideas. Like I, I was yeah. picking up on on the stuff in episode seven. They pay off in episode eight constantly. Yeah. Um, and then cringy hotel scene. Oh my god! Ooh. I just averted my eyes when Chris walked in that door. I was like, Chris, no, don't look. She Ex- didn't mean it. Extremely painful. He uh, he ends it on a tough note. I think he. I don't even want to repeat what he calls her, but it stings more than anything else you've seen. Yep. I think in the the show he calls her what other men have called her. Mm-hmm. But he was the one that wasn't calling her that and was sticking up for her. And it, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a tough scene. It's very tough, but it's understandable. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's what makes the show hard. There's no easy person to root for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, and that's sort of in fitting with the noir conventions, right? Mm-hmm. About you know, not sure if, if there's anybody that's they all good. They drink, they smoke. Patty's got shiny mm-hmm. hair. Uh, some of the Very men shiny. wear ties. Mm-hmm. Boom! It's a noir. There you go. And uh, the the lady had one too many gentlemen callers. <laughs> that she did. <laughs> and that's how you know you're watching a noir. Um, and then um, potion making Patty builds into this note the infant the infantilization of her daughter and mm-hmm. her daughters, but. Um, at the end of this episode, it's Emma. Yeah. She is uh, making Emma sick with the potions that she'd been making earlier. Yeah. And Or you could call them whatever you want to call them. I'm going to call them potions. <laughs> I like potions. You could also call them poisons. Yeah. But it needs to start with a P if you're dealing with me. Oh, witch's brew, perhaps? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, witch's brew potion. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, any last words you want to say about falling? Um, you, you know, that's kind of the first time that uh, I, I, I guess I'll try to come up with some sort of an abbreviation here. Um, this is the first time she willingly takes off her clothing for a man and allows herself to be read. Um, mm-hmm. And she literally says, you read me. Um, I, I think they've both been drinking, but it is kind of the first time she reveals herself to a man and allows herself to be read. Um and when she has intercourse, she's not submitting to any other power. She's kind of on equal footing. Um, yeah. it, it, it is interesting. In the last um, scene that we get kind of between them of intimacy, he kisses her scar that says mercy. Mm. Um, and it, it was just, uh, it, it was a very well-toned episode in the television format. I don't think it was good in the limited series format. Um, I, I, I think that it was a good episode, but I, I think that kind of the first half of it wasn't suited to a, a limited series format. Mm. I think that a limited series format calls for more attention and more um, direction than I've been seeing with the episodes. Particularly yep. knowing how this ends, I think that you could have gotten here in six episodes, mm. and I think that the episodes could have been slightly shorter and tighter. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would not disagree. As much as I like episode 8, which we'll talk about shortly, I think it might have just hit me even harder um, had this been a little tighter. Yes. Um, but, uh, so it goes. Episode 8. So it goes. Let's get to uh, Milk. Just don't tell Mama. Milk. So the intro evokes respect in the feeling of a stalwart societal totem. It opens without the... Um, the rotations that we're used to. Mm-hmm. It opens with blood. It mm. opens with wire. It opens with barbed wire. And it opens with the totems. 
It opens mm-hmm. with kind of the town's uh, facades, the the buildings of the town's facades. Yeah. Um, and, and it evokes this brooding darkness of the town. Um, and it, it's very much kind of an intro that evokes finality. Yeah. But also, uh, I think a sense of respect that Jean-Luc, um, in conjunction with Gillian, really got the right tone for i i think that yeah. that the um intros of this show might be some of the strongest artistic pieces that it has to offer yeah um and particularly in the in this final episode i began to understand how um the makeup choices that they used on amy um were very conducive to the tone and yeah. that what they got, I didn't exactly pick up on it, but what they basically did was what they did to Charlize Theron and Monster, where we they never saw that. limit the amount of beauty that she's able to appeal to. She's still beautiful. You can't rob her of her beauty. She's just too beautiful of a gal. Yeah. But um, they, they certainly downplay it, and they make her look more um, musty and, and musky, maybe, than yeah. um, she would otherwise look. Just, yeah. just without any makeup on at all. Yeah, she looks weary, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm. Um, and costume choices absolutely played into that. Yeah. So it starts out, boom. Who is Amma? Who is Amma? Uh-huh. Greek goddess. Uh, Married to Hades. I don't recall the beginning. Persephone. Mm. Living dead girl. There you half go. Half the year mm. in hell, half the year amongst the living. Interesting. Um, so... Living Dead Girl is absolutely what happened. Then we move into um, Amy allowing herself to be poisoned as well. And then yeah. they're Living Dead Girls. By the looks of it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so I have this quote. Just let yourself be looked after. Is that from Adora? That's from Adora, but that was also very similar to something that uh, Amy had said in bed last episode to the boy of the girl who died um, when she said maybe she would have been better off if she just let her mother look after her. Mm. So it, it is an interesting continuation of these thoughts that she's having. Yeah. Um, and then um, Emma is no longer being focused on. She's no longer the, the brunt of the poisoning. Um, she comes to Amy's door and Amy tells her to flee. Um, Emma's once again in white. Um, yeah. Emma goes to flee. This is the one time the father steps in, keeps her penned in. Yeah. Tells her he's going to bring her cake. Um, and then, and at this point in the show, we're finally made clear that the issue is something called Munchausen by proxy. Mm. Which I'd had a feeling might be the subject, but I, I kind of haven't been sure because of Emma's... Um, uncharacteristic traits mm. of her character <laughs> yeah um but it, it becomes very clear especially by the end of this that this is um at minimum munchausen by proxy and at most um you know the transition of behavioral patterns entirely from a mother to a daughter yeah uh, and I, I thought the execution was well done it's just once again, I think that this tran- transference of not understanding Amma into knowing that Amma has Munchausen by proxy at a minimum um, 
and that Marion probably did. Yeah. Is yeah. best done in five to six episodes. Yeah. You don't think it, it could be even done in, in less time? I do, but I question whether or not the... Hmm, that's interesting, because then you're sacrificing side characters. Which, yeah. which take away from the detective narrative. Yeah. And so I, I don't... I think that you can, but you have to toss Chris Messina. Yeah. And, and, and then you have to toss the girlfriend... Yeah. Of the of the boy whose sister dies, and you have to toss all the time she spends with um, the victims, um, significant people, and you have to just focus on her home life and her relationship with her um, newspaper editor. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sure. And and you have to make that the entire kind of buttress of the show. Yeah. I yeah. I do think you could do it in less time, but I don't think you could do it in its. I don't think Jean-Luc could do it. Yeah. In in less yeah. than five episodes. Yeah. I mean, to me that is, you know, what some of the great directors do is um, start with these, you know, outrageously long cuts of the movie that they want to make, and then they have to make those really hard decisions about yes. what to exclude and Malik. what to include. Yeah. Um, and there will always be things in a movie that sort of point to things that exist, you know, beyond the frame and beyond which we'll ever get to see. Um, I still think that there is sort of a uh, filmic interpretation of this story that could have been equally resonant. Um, but... No, I, I agree now that I've seen the end of it, that I, I, I think you can get there. Yeah. And I think that the way that you get there is that um, you have the tone of the town be mm. the tone of the house. Within the show, the the house has a very gothic tone. Yeah. I think that in a movie, you have to make the town gothic, and you yeah. have to make um, the the home that she's from basically feel like uh, Wayne Manor from Batman. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and you can get away with it. Yeah. And then you basically episode eight has to be kind of the fulcrum of the film, and then yeah. it's just kind of her walking into a horror story and. Uh, it, it basically devolves into a, a film of poisoning. Yeah. Um, and the reason that I think that is because Misery did a fairly good job. Oh, yeah, the Stephen King one. I've never seen that, but oh, familiar okay. with it. You, you would yeah. like it quite a bit, I think. Yeah. I, I think that, that Misery kind of brings about what the um, pacing and, and choices with time use mm -hmm. would similarly be in this, because they are both novels. Um but I do think that you 100% sacrifice Camille's personality. I don't mm. see making a film where Camille is as fully fleshed out of a, of a strong feminine character that has mm. as many nuances and abrasions and facets um, in less runtime than five hours. I think you need five hours to get this character out in yeah. context and juxtaposition to other things. Yeah. And without those, um, you're kind of narrowed into that dark passage feel. Of your, mm. you are a, a character and a witness to this character's yeah. um, interactions and experiences. Yeah, I definitely felt that when we get the, I forget which episode it was, when we do get the flashback to her in the, you know, facility with mm -hmm. her roommate. Yes. Um, I mean, I do think that that was a pretty important backstory. Um, and I backstory. don't think you get that in a film. Say that again. I don't think you can get there in a film. I agree. I, I do think that well, you that start would. There maybe. 
yeah, like, like I can't quite sequence. figure out, yeah, how you would integrate that, you know, um, in a in a tighter timeline. But I think that was kind of an important flashback in enriching her character and her history of trauma. Yes, um, especially because it's something that um, involved somebody else. It wasn't something she did to herself, although she does do something to herself in that scene. Um, but I think that was a pretty important sequence that like really earned its own episode. Yes. Um, so it's hard again why we don't do it <laughs> yet um all right so uh, just plain and simple patricia clarkson's physical performance mm. is incredible i took this note while she was um nursing amy adams camille in the um bathtub mm. she is on her knees um she's got a sick bucket to the side of, of amy adams character and Amy's hand is on the bathtub, and she's doing this um, kind of motherly but controlling pattern of finger tapping and massaging mm. to her hand yeah. that is both uh, alleviating and, and induces the idea of control. Mm. And and she's been doing that every episode, the whole show. Mm. She, I, I think, is the standout for me in performers here by, by a long shot. Um, what, what do you think? I would agree. Uh, I don't think um, anybody has quite as tricky of a role as she has in being sort of as domineering and sort of just um, uh, frustrating to watch as she is and yet not have been too obvious throughout the whole season in leading us to suspect her. Yes. Um, I think she, she pulls that off, whereas as great as Amy's performance is um i think it's um kind of consistent in what she does mm -hmm. um it's consistently effective um, and it's not something exactly new that she's you know the yeah. character is new but the performance isn't new she's yeah. not showing me something that i haven't seen in, in arrival or yeah. enchanted or you, you know like i i kind of have seen what she's been able to do to a point where it's going to take something different for her to surprise me and, you know, just for comparison's sake, I think that someone like Emma Stone hasn't yet shown me mm. her best work. And I mm -hmm. think that she's showing me something new in all of her performances. But I could easily see by age 36 that I'm completely um, lost with, with um, the gravitation that Emma Stone has at the moment. Where I yep. think that maybe she will have played into all of her acting tricks by then and then she'll need to develop them. I, I think that it's kind of because as we go through stages as biological organisms mm -hmm. and these ages that, that we go through transferences of how we um, demonstrate our power and I think that Amy might be needing to learn kind of what Sharon Stone's techniques are more now what Glenn Close's Ooh. techniques are more hmm. um, than relying on her old techniques um, I, I, I think that it's about time that that she learns those um, and, and move, moves forward. I think that Emily Blunt might be nearing this juncture as well, where they mm. need to move towards more power uh, domineering acting mm. than um, kind of, uh, you know, misplaced damsel acting that they've mm. been relegated to. And they've been mm. doing a very good job with it. It's just, I, I, I think that their um, roles moving forward will be more demanding of them. Whereas I don't think mm. that someone like Margot necessarily needs to learn new um, techniques she just needs to hone them or find them and work on them. I, yeah. I think that those are kind of implicit in her 
she's one of those actors where I like Nicole Kidman where I don't question that it's in her just when yeah. is it going to come out of her kind yeah. of like Glenn Close yeah this is where I get a little tripped up about performance versus just direction like I feel like Amy Adams might have just done exactly what no, she, she absolutely to. did. Um, just um, like I don't, I don't doubt that she might have been able to turn it up in either in either direction in terms of either fragility or um, sort of intensity. It's it's kind of stable in like the oddly the, stable the the the, re, the register she's in, I guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd agree with everything you said. Yeah. I I I think she can tone up. Or toned down either way. It's just yeah. um, she keeps taking kind of similar roles. <laughs> um, n- not that you know this genre is a typical genre for her, but you know this character who's you know disillusioned and has to go through a redeeming um, interaction is is a typical you know plot scheme for her um, characters that she's played. Yeah, and I I think that if she if she broadens her techniques, she could be incredible in a historical film. Yeah, how surprising would it be if you, like, swapped Rachel Weisz out in the favorite for Amy Adams? Right. That could be really unpredictable performance-wise. Or, or Saoirse for Amy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would be cool. Call us casting directors. Yeah. Um, so next is uh, Patricia Clarkson is feeding, feeding Amy Adams as if she is a pig mm-hmm. out of that bottle. Um, I think that the the visual cue there is is quite startling and clear. Uh, you know, there mm-hmm. there's no bones about it, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> no teeth about it. It's it's just mm-hmm. a fact. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, Christmasina arrives. Um, asks if he can see her he's sent away this whole time those records that have been spinning in the intro and in the background of the show yeah are now deafened turned up in volume now now we understand what the music of the house is mm. it, it's killing music mm. it's hard to watch it's effective stuff um once again, I thought of the line, if you let them do it to you, it's really like you're doing it to them. Yeah. Um, which I, I think that I was thinking about Marion, her other sister, who died. Mm. And I was wondering if she let her mother kill her because then it was like killing her mother. Mm. Yeah, I find that har- I find that a little harder to digest. I don't I don't think it's easy to digest. I, yeah. It's just a thought that I had that was interesting, yeah. and I don't think that it's necessarily what Marion thought. Yeah. But I do think maybe it was a, a, maybe a thought that they wanted me to think or yeah. to think about. Um, yeah. In conjunction to that line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not one that I picked up on. Um, not one that I that I like to think about. I like to think about these girls exercising their power in other ways, obviously. Yeah. But. I, I, I don't necessarily like it, it's just... Yeah. I, I go there. where the artistic voice leads me, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Camille and Emma didn't have any strong men in their lives. And Camille is attracted to strong men and honesty. Mm. Did 
you note that when you saw her with the uh, young man, John Keane, or when she was with huh? Chris Messina, or neither? I'm just I, curious. To me, that's, uh, that might have originated out of her an interaction with a man. I noted this based on the interactions of her father. Mm, gotcha. Because of the yeah. juxtaposition of who um, they seem to be attracted to and how weak their father is. Mm. And yeah. that they are not a. Tr- they do not seem either of them to be attracted to anyone like their father, who, yeah. to put it basically, is just a weakling and a pathetic man. Pretty much, yeah. Emma calls Adora's friend a witch. Oh, I don't even remember that. Remember the friend that I say is always in a, a darker hue. That's always oh, drinking. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When she comes to see Adora at the yeah. jail outside, and then they say she's not allowed to come see us. Yeah. Mm, that tied in just right. Just right. <laughs> I told you it's coming back. Um, so this is, you know, uh, baby reaching. But mm. um, where were they saved? What, where, where did uh, Emma and Camille go when they became safe? Uh, St. Louis? Which maybe? is? North. Okay. And where mm. were they suffering? Out. And what were they surrounded by? Ooh, don't know. What do you think? White people exclusively. And as soon as they're mm. in the north, they're surrounded by an equal mixture of everyone. Mm. Almost instantaneously. And it's very visually clear mm. that um, safety and, and honesty and clarity and beauty uh, and, mm. and freedom are happening here. And that mm. prison and imprisonment is happening down in the south. Mm. I, I thought that the the visual um, iconography was it was very clear in that, and that there was kind of a finality point there being made when uh, mm. when everyone's sitting at the table, and it's it's literally a half and half split of African American and, and white. Yeah, it's just one hundred percent an even split, and I I thought that you know they were kind of having a supper together and all getting along. And it, it just kind of pulled out that image to me of exactly what the statement about the Deep South is being made within the show mm. and what that yeah. play may have to do with the conversation that Gillian's trying to have uh, yeah. um, about her experiences there or, or whatever. Um, I, I just thought that that should be brought up because I think that that yeah. is a point that um, needs to at least be noticed. Yeah. Yeah, was, you know, what, kind of what this series is doing with with race has been something that like I've it's kind of like just barely come into my mind and then gone out because it is like to me it, it has been on the periphery sort of of what I've absorbed. Um, to me, it has not been in the in the foreground exactly, but then there are sort of these really small touches that do sort of just bring it back into your mind. One thing that like I happened to notice was not only do we see Camille's boss um you know throughout the show when he when she calls him um but we also see his wife mm-hmm. um we see uh in episode eight it might have been episode seven she calls him and there is a newspaper clipping on the wall and it's of um a newspaper from um obama's inauguration oh, i don't think i saw that yeah and it says it's obama I think there's an exclamation mark or something like that. Um, you know, really subtle. It's hard to know what to to really take Read away from it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or, but there, or what he's 
kind of trying to demonstrate. Yeah. It could be extra textual. I haven't read the book. Um, I yeah, think you read the either. book. I don't think I did. No, okay. no, no. I read uh, Gone Girl and Dark Places. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha, the gotcha, other Gillian gotcha, Flynn novel. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to know whether or not this is a, a statement she's making or whether it's a statement he's making. Yeah. Um, which, I, you know, he, he has plenty of valid points to make in, in other films, so I... Yeah, I think that you know th- this is one that should be at least um, tuned into. Yeah. Um, all right, and then the final thing um, that'll probably uh, give us a, mm. a long conversation here in my notes is: Do you remember like two episodes ago when I asked you what uh, Patty's room is made of? Her floor. Ivory. Yeah. You, you mm. think that that was an important mm. question I asked you? you think I remember that. Maybe that. that's going to come back up here right now. I do recall. Uh, so the dollhouse hides the teeth within the ivory tower floor. That's right. Who'd have thunk it? A floor of teeth. And so um, we kind of glossed over the fact that uh, Patty Clarkson's Adora was mm. caught with the pliers and is culpable for killing these girls. Or so we are led to believe. Pleads not guilty in court however Emma has moved in with Camille and uh-huh. Camille on earths or uh, up beds if you will the fact that these uh, girls teeth are being used as uh, ivory tower flooring yeah. in the dollhouse um, that she's been standing at and laughing at with her friends throughout the show yeah so fuck <laughs> seemed appropriate uh, what do you think man I thought this was a pretty strong note which to conclude I, I did too but then you showed me that post credit sequence and now I don't know no. um, not, so the post credit sequence is both girls being murdered by other young girls mm-hmm. so my question is do you think that uh, Adora is culpable or not uh, for those murders no okay. do you I don't know mm. you think she played a, a, a role or was aware or something yes mm. I, aware I, I would say yeah um, yeah I be- because there's not a thing about um, Amma's behavior that she seems to not be aware of. Mm. So I, I don't, you know, do you blame the parent of the child? It's hard to say. Where's the age cutoff? Where's agency reached? Where, mm. um, when, is, when are you plausibly allowed to deny, um, you know, guilt? I, I don't know. I it certainly made me think about these questions which i think good art does um yeah but those visceral images interlaced in that mid-credit sequence were incredible yeah very well done we had the pause and and theorize a little bit before we we turned back on the mic here to to figure out exactly what we were thinking or what we agreed on um but yeah Emma's certainly guilty what do you think about her level of guilt though do you think that it's excusable through her munchausen by proxy do you think that this mm-hmm. is learned behavior from her mother and maybe she's not munchausen by proxy at all um what do you think uh i think it's hard to define it as excusable um well, i it's think just i think it's maybe a fairly... couple of innocent little girls <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know that. i don't think that's the word i would use um but I think it has been um, satisfyingly contextualized. Um, I think um, 
there are certain murder mysteries like this where you're thrown in a direction in an attempt to surprise you that feels more um, like a stretch than is necessary just just to provide shock. Um, I found this um, as surprising as it was understandable. Um, not that I not excusable, um, but in keeping, I think, with the narrative and with what we um, have come to understand about Emma. Yeah. Um, so you think Adora is 100% innocent? I think so. Do you? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't think that Patty's innocent in any way. It, it took me a good minute there to, to consider it. Because but... even if she isn't involved in the murders, I think that her behavioral um, and demonstrative parenting led to the actions taken by her daughter. Hmm. And I think that the consistent poisoning of her daughter contributed. I, I, I think that that malpractice and maltreatment um, and, yeah. and malparenting, if you will, yeah. Um, yeah. all contributed to just, yeah, no. She, <laughs> she's, she is the parent of someone who is acting out um, and, you know, at bottom, her behavior needs to be scrutinized and... If she, you know, if she wouldn't have been poisoning her daughter, and wouldn't have been this crazy, weird, abusive parent, then I, I would certainly yeah. be willing to make um, y- y- shift a different way or be more open-minded. But I think that uh, any parent that poisons their child um, m- might be culpable. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I think I misunderstood. Actions. I thought maybe you were you were somehow um, inferring her, her awareness about the the. The murder. No, I, I'm not willing like to say whether or not she knew. I, it. I won't, okay. yeah, I won't yeah. take a statement on that. I don't think that they want us to take a statement on that or yeah. want to know. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do think that the behavioral patterns that um, she demonstrated and how those affected Emma are rep- with, yeah. representatively culpable. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't disagree with that. And I'm in no way endorsing poisoning of children. <laughs> so uh, both pretty resounding admiration for this is a limited series from us i yep. certainly think it could have done better um but it, it is a limited series i i think the only true um excellent version of this form that i've seen um comes in the detective genre yeah. and i don't think that this leaned into the detective genre enough to find that pacing um the, the limited series that, that I think have done this are specifically True Detective and Mosaic. Mm, where I, yeah, I, I, I find their, um, the, the detective narrative and pacing with these extended, uh, you know, eight to 12 episode arcs actually yeah. pay off and play out and contribute to a, a story that is very... Um, very much something that you couldn't see depicted in almost in any other way. Mm. Whereas this is something I think consistently throughout we could see depicted in a different way. Mm. And then, you know, there's there's um, series that use this form better. Like, mm. they just had Succession. It uses this one-hour mm. episode format much better, but that's because it, it gets to build up to something and never actually has to pay it off. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas this has to pay it off. That's, you know... They, uh, certain television series don't ever have to give you what they're promising you. Lost yeah. 
you know, is, is the oh, prime yeah. example. <laughs> never giving you what you uh, signed up for. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that all in all, this, this did a good job. I would prefer to see them return to, um, or to see Jean-Marc return to a film role. Yeah. I think that he exceeded with Big Little Lies last year. And that yep. I, I would put that in the company of a great limited series, except for it's not a limited series. Because it's a mm. full-blown yeah. series now. It now. Is. Yeah, I think it was originally conceived as a miniseries, but now they're like, yes, let's keep was. going. They made too much money, and yeah. Reese, I believed, agreed to produce it, so that makes sense. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, and I would, too. Those, those girls probably had a bunch of fun together, and it's a good excuse for them to get to work together. So. Yeah. Yeah, with miniseries, sometimes I don't know until the end how I feel about how certain formal choices sort of cohere with the content until you just know where you end up. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the thing I've been struggling with throughout a lot of the series was some of these editing choices and sometimes feeling like maybe I'm, like, kind of getting baited along into suspense, you know? Um, And for a little while, I, I, I wasn't quite sure I liked that sensation of having maybe a carrot held out in front of me and i think I've, i finally came around to it and sometimes this is just a personal thing when you sort of kind of you know find a metaphor in form itself but to me you know if, you, if i think about editing as something being really specific to film it's something that distinguishes it as a medium from just raw experience because um raw experience isn't something that's edited and cut mm-hmm. um these these cuts that are as jarring and repeated and as sort of breaking of the continuity as they are throughout the series, I think is actually kind of in harmony with this theme of self-mutilation and self-destruction that yeah. is throughout the series. I don't know why that really didn't just kind of click before. I think it felt more like a technique to produce suspense, but I think it is something... I think um, it's both. Yeah, it, I mean, I think it can be built, but I think that helps me. I think I think by the end, sympathize it, it might with have it more. Found its artistry, but I, I do think that working along, it was very. It did feel like a carrot held out in front of you, right? Yeah, because it, yeah. how do, how does the end of the first episode come about? That's the first time uh, you know that yeah. she's got scars. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and it, here's the carrot. Tune in for episode two. So yeah. they are absolutely using that kind of as that marketing ploy, but it's also yeah. playing into the artistry of the work, which yeah. did take me a little bit to come along to. But I think I was more confident in it arriving there than you were at first. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's <clears throat> it's probably something that I think was something that I absorbed despite what it may have been intended to use. That happens yes. sometimes. Like there are really you can enjoy things despite what a director might have been intending to do yeah. you know directorial intent is always is only so much once they hand it over it's for us to kind of do what we, we yes. will with it so whether or not there was any you know yeah whether or not he had any intent you know to, to sort of make that com- that connection between sort of a, a cutting up of the medium itself at routine intervals just as sort of amy adams does that to herself as she revisits these memories i think sort of did click at a certain point and uh it worked yeah and it was fun. It was. <laughs> All right. Well, that, you know, sadly, I think, ends our, our continual recurring uh, Sharp Objects recap. Next episode, we should be digging into the first two episodes, if not more, probably just the first two, of Jack Ryan from Amazon in our Globalism episode. Should be a good change of pace from the darkness of Sharp Objects. This perhaps will be a different kind of tone. And then we'll 
uh, switch right back to uh, probably the week after the deuce get right back into our psychosexual darkness uh, in the underbelly of the naked city itself not going to keep it light for long so <laughs> enjoy John Krasinski while you can and now we're going to do a little bit of a recurring segment where we tell you what the show averages between us two budding film critics are for the uh, titles that we've discussed so sharp objects all eight episodes uh, contextualized in the final review we each gave a four to four um, and a four. You know that this does not happen often. Um, the Naked City, you gave a three and a half. I gave a four and a half. We've gotten averages a show as a four. Um, searching, we have a show average of three. Mm-hmm. Out of the past, we have a show average of four point two five, which is a pretty ringing endorsement when you yeah. think about it. Right ahead of it, we have a film that truly deserves the highest accolades: Dark Passage, oh, yeah. coming in at four point five. And then we have Papillon coming in at a three, in between my four and your two. Split uh, there. And then Blowout as a show we have at a 4.5. Um, I think that's all from Drinking the Movies this week. This has been Taylor. And Michael. Uh, tune in next week for Globalism and Jack Ryan. And uh, a beer different than our funky red ale, which uh, I think we've both finished and we both found quite delightful. Absolutely. The films in our Globalism discussion will include the meg crazy rich asians armageddon as well as there's one i'm forgetting avengers infinity war that's right tune in ahead of time and uh join us for the conversation thanks for tuning in see you next week adios we have to go i'm coming with you